What you about to witness is my thoughts. Just my thoughts, man. Yeah. So these are kids are 14 years old. Yeah. 14, uh, 15, learning how to use, what is that? So this is, I mean, Niger is weird. Um, so obviously these kids are in the Nigerian uh, military. And I guess the, the best way to start all this is to kind of explain like what we were doing. So Indiana National Guard has a program that works with Africa Command, so AFRICOM. Where basically we send our um, mobile training team, MTT instructors, over to Niger. And our whole job over there is to try and advance their military and modernize it. So, like when Libya fell, like in the you know early 2000s, uh, Libya was kind of like Africa's first like military superpower. So, you know, they had a terrible ruler, terrible leader, all that jazz, but at the same time, like, he kind of had a handle on that whole situation, and a lot of those arms and stuff were centralized. Well, if, like, you follow, like, popular history and everything, what happens when you decentralize that region is all those weapons and all those arms now go into the hands of, you know, violent extremists, not necessarily people who are, like, inherently bad or have, like, malintent, but you know, when your whole job has been military, army, like learning how to do that job, and now there's just no government, anything, I mean, you got to make money somehow. And so, like, a lot of those weapons and stuff started to trickle down. And if you look at a map of Africa, you've got, like, Libya up in North Africa, and then kind of flanking it, like, to the left, you've got, like, Mali, to the right, you've got Chad, and in the middle of those, you've got Niger. And so Niger was a little bit different than Mali and Chad because they closed their borders as soon as all that happened, and they also outlawed firearms in the country. Hmm. And so it seems kind of weird to us because, you know, the Second Amendment is such a big part of, you know, what we have in the States, like it or not. Mm-hmm. Over there, it was more the thinking of we need to keep these weapons out of the country and we need to keep kind of this chaos out of the country so not only does Niger have like this wealth of natural resources most of which being like um, like silver oil uh, uranium um, it's definitely in the west best interest to keep you know Niger from falling into that same kind of pattern of extremism and everything Mm -hmm. that surrounding countries have so you know, fast forward, AFRICOM basically, uh, sometimes the National Guard will get augmented into these different, like, training programs because, you know, we are the National Guard. It's a whole one week in a month, two weeks a year, but we do have full-time staff that are pretty good at what we do. Um, in Indiana... And you're, are you full t- you're full-time. Yeah, I'm full-time. And so, um, like, even in Indiana, like, we have a special forces group, uh, Naval Special Warfare. Their East Coast Sniper School is in Indiana. Um, there's a huge like weapons development place in Indiana. And then you have kind of us in our weird little regional training Institute. 
So we got sent over there to help augment and improve their infantry program. Okay. Because right now they're like working with this weird like collection of like NATO countries, their tactics. There's no like real set way to do anything. So their thinking is in AFRICOM, kind of Niger, the whole agreed upon thinking is that this contracting company comes in, they make observations where there is subject matter experts and we eventually are going to get tasked with going over there and helping to instruct their instructors like hey here's how you teach infantry tactics 101 so instead of there being like 30 different ways for them to say like hey there's an ied in the road we can teach them one way and instead of like hey here's 30 different shooting positions we teach them one way to do stuff mm-hmm. and so like ten thousand so like the bruce lee of like 10,000 yeah. kicks or ten, one kick 10,000 times. Yeah, and so it's we also bring like, I mean, I got roped into this kind of because my background being in education. Um, mm-hmm. Like obviously you know this, like I have a four-year English teaching degree from Ball State. And so like adolescent ed, as much as it sounds like we go over there and you just teach them how to war, it's, it's <laughs> like it's more complicated than that. Like yeah, there's this teach them how to war. <laughs> yeah, there's this temptation to just think of it as like, you know, will you just teach them how to shoot a gun or you teach them how to like react to something like, no, these people don't have like a formalized education in the same way we do. Like if I give you say, Hey, you need to read up on like, let's say accounts payable accounts receivable. I need you to learn how to do this job. You're, you have the 12 years, if nothing else of, K through 12 education where you learn how to like sit down, take information, lay it out in a digestible way and competently build a skill set. Like some of these dudes are getting pulled like straight out of the African bush. Like, I don't know if we can see it in these pictures, but there are a few of these kids. Like if you look at their cheeks, they've still got like cuts, like where they, they'll like take razors on these babies and it's not even like malicious. It's like a tradition. So they'll like, put like these ornate like versions of cuts in their face Mm -hmm. and it's to like identify which tribe they're from okay and they're having to right now teach basic training in like uh hausa which is like kind of one of the more primary dialects around the nyame region where we were in niger uh there's zarma which is kind of like they were the big majority back in the day and not so much anymore and then you have french which is kind of like the the white guy language of Niger. Mm-hmm. So um, when the French kind of imperialized, like when they colonized, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, Niger, they brought in French. They kind of made that the language of the land. Um, but they don't necessarily like the French, though. They uh, yeah. they they're well. It's kind of like that's another part of history. Is it's like you don't like the people that don't belong there. Yeah, and I mean, not even that, it's just they're not really great hosts. Okay. So it's kind of like the understanding and why the people in Niger really love us, like it got to the point, I mean, I'm in a third world country, but I was able to go like running around where I was like towards the end of the quarantine, which I'll cover that a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But I was able to go like running around there and i mean as soon as you're like good morning good morning like hey how's it going man like you would literally have dudes like american military and they'd like pump their fists and stuff because yeah like we have developed a reputation in that region of you know the french would just come and say like 
you know, hey, we need this from you guys. And they'll like, you know, mine for uranium or do whatever. But they would look at the people of Niger as like very much like second class citizens. Mm -hmm. Like if second class citizens. Right. Like they're not treated well. And when you can go in there and be like, you know, kind of like we were talking about, like everybody's suffering is everyone's suffering. So like if you treat them as peers mm -hmm. and you say, you know, the fact you guys grew up in such an impoverished area and are able to like, you know, still volunteer, like that's a lifelong commitment these 14 year old kids are making Wow, to be in the army. And when you say like, you know, I really respect that and you have it and you're actually willing to give resources, follow through, like, I mean, that makes a huge impact on a nation and yeah let me let me back up yeah what's yeah. up everybody oh god oh i'm so sorry <laughs> no, that's part of it. no i uh i don't really like starting these shows off with like hello everybody i'm jeremy and this is just my thoughts thanks for being here today yeah no. i think anybody that listens to this like at, at this point just kind of accepted that just kind of whatever it comes up comes up so okay cool um yeah whether it be drugs hookers we haven't had too many hookers on the show, but uh, no. whatever comes up just comes up. But ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I got my dear friend. <laughs> like, we've been friends since we were like five, probably. Yeah. No, I think there's pictures of us. In, we're in the same preschool yep. class. Mrs. Yeah. Dana. Yep. Mrs. Dana. Yep. Dana Hoopengartner. Yep. My dear friend, Brandon Bennett. He just got back from Niger. I've always said Niger. Yeah. Niger. Uh, he's with the um, the Air Force National Guard, full time. Army. 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 I'm sorry, you said yeah. My bad. No, you're good. Army, and uh, he just got back from Niger. He and I, like I said, we've been we were like best friends in high school. Just whenever we catch up, it just takes maybe two minutes to talk, and then we're like right back into it. I yeah. love it. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I definitely want to cover the last the last time we went out together because that was like. <laughs> one of the best that was one of the best nights i've had like during the week there's like what maybe like a thursday brand's like yeah i can't get too crazy tonight and i gotta get up and go to like it was workout class at like 6 a.m yeah meanwhile we're out just absolutely we got bottle service we're just absolutely hammered until like three we get home i'm pretty sure i free willied the bar at one point at land sharks <laughs> yeah we did so yeah. We, we, were pouring, yeah, we were pouring the bottle yeah that was ridiculous. But anyway, you got up that next morning, like 5.30, went to your class. And yeah. I was just like, that is such a, one of the things that I've always just admired so much about you is your level of discipline is just top <laughs> chart, top level. I so appreciate definitely that, definitely want to bring that one up. That was a great night. That was. Anyway, he just got back from Niger. We are talking. Wanted to get him in here on the podcast because he's got a shit ton of awesome experiences. And just, I just love talking to my friends. So yeah. welcome, brother. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Sorry, I kind of like hijacked the podcast for like I didn't no, really know how to podcast. So <laughs> rather, I'd rather have you talk than me. Just I say the same thing every episode. So. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, we're uh, we're doing well. My son's birthday is tomorrow. I'm uh, pretty excited for that. It's been a hell of a year. Um, yeah, as most, you told most me, most people know like my son had a pretty rough start, and now he's doing great. Um, but you know, to be able to look on the last year for myself, it's been like, wow, what a year of just incredible growth as a man. Yeah. Um, and I know you've you've grown a lot in the last year too. So yeah, let's start absolutely. like uh, I, I want to hear like about your experience. Like, what made you go back? Because you were out of the military for a while, weren't you? No, so I um, I was when I got out of school. Obviously, I had like. Uh, qualifications as an educator mm -hmm. and so I uh, I went to teach for a few years taught at John Young Middle School and then um, 
ended up getting out of that because I had an opportunity uh, with 20th Special Forces Group to try out for their training team, passed, uh, which National Guard has this weird, like, you have to do selection before selection. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I did that. And then, um, I don't know, things just got kind of weird. I got out of, like, that pipeline and started doing, like, a financial recruiting, working with uh, Aston Carter here in town. Okay. And so, um, nothing like, great organization, great people. Like, I really liked them and enjoyed working with them. But just, like, sales and uh, that stuff was not kind of my cup of tea and so i kind of removed myself and Mm -hmm. then had the opportunity to go military full-time i feel like you are like right where you're supposed to be it seems like that just from the outside looking in yeah man it uh um you know i won't pretend like the national guard or like the army or or anything is a perfect organization because there's definitely a lot of like gripes and complaints you can have about it but at the same time a I, I don't know if it was the way I was raised, like my mom especially, is kind of that like uh, there are not a whole lot of excuses in Carol Bennett's household. <laughs> <laughs> she does not make a whole lot of room for that. And so just having that like influence and that inspiration growing up, because uh, like my dad was always this big like empath, really like open, loving, mm-hmm. like, you know, he was the one who would like when I had a bad day would come like help me like lick the wounds that sort of thing mm-hmm. and then mom was like the you know that that Hard sucks charger. try harder yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah okay and then does your mom still she still bike dude she is yeah I mean um obviously like I kind of had a pretty heavy year kind of like you did right and um in the wake of that, I mean, she actually joked at one point that she was back down to the same weight she was at for her wedding. And mom is like 60 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she still bikes. Uh, that was, that's kind of how we hang out anymore. Honestly, yeah. like she brings that down to, uh, to Fortville where we're at and we'll go for like, I mean, usually on the low end, a 30 mile ride, usually on the high end, like 100, 120 miles. Jeez. So you do, you get down with that too then? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I actually, um, really cool dude in the area, another picture on the phone, on the, uh, laptop here. I'm actually having a custom steel bike made by a guy named, uh, Tim O'Donnell that actually works here in Broad Ripple. And so, um, my dad and I like fished and that was kind of how we hung out Mm -hmm. and so he put together a custom frame kind of like uh for me that has some elements of that but it's uh like finally making one of my own i've always wanted one of these things since like college so weird tangent but yeah uh yeah i'm enough into biking that i ended up getting like a custom uh steel frame built you're just you're like super active yeah no yeah that is like i don't know it like people who specialize in one form of like athletics, like I really respect it. Like I know there are people in the indie area that are big into like powerlifting that do mm-hmm. all that type of stuff. And, you know, I will never diminish what those people do. But for me, it's kind of like, you know, I, I have one life. Like I'm going to, like I tried the CrossFit thing. I tried to like, you know, the powerlifter thing. Like I just like endurance stuff. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I have a high strung personality. So it yeah. gives me a chance to like zone out and get into like my, my zen space well, yeah, i mean you you just get shit done you've always <laughs> been like that yeah it um i don't know man it's like the it, i think that's one of the you know i talk about like niger and being over there and 
like that is a cultural thing that we as Americans have is like this just mindset of you know it is like this is a blank slate and you can do whatever you want with it and what a shame that would be to just like leave that to leave anything on the plate and like leave anything lead any lead like unfollowed like any loose strings that type of stuff I mean we're young we have our health like we have motivation ambition like just get after it while you can amen to that yeah absolutely man when'd you get married was that so um yeah my wife it's people joke that it was like wedding one and two uh because so when my wife and i got married in like um it would have been the end of 2018 and then was when we legally got married um my request for my wife was that um I wanted to have like something just for us mm-hmm. because I think that when you get married too much of the time, it becomes like a, I don't know. It becomes like a spectacle. That's how it's, mine was. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you're, you're putting on a show for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I'm going to promise you for the rest of my life that we're going to be together, I want to do it in front of like, it's going to be an arrangement between me, you and God. Yeah. <laughs> and that, so we actually went out to a, Vail, Colorado, and uh, went up into the mountains and did like a legal ceremony with awesome. just us. Like we actually we had a photographer come out, so mm-hmm. it wasn't completely yeah. free of vanity. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then um, we wanted to do the whole ceremony out there, but um, kind of with like Dad's condition at the time, it was like we needed to have it more local, more of like an easy place to get to, kind of right. easy on the body, that type of thing. So we ended up. Uh, it would have been March 23rd, 2019 was our like big reception. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic church calls it a convalidation because it wasn't a marriage. <laughs> it was a convalidation. Okay. Is she, are you, is she Catholic? Yeah. So okay. my wife, um, her, her family has like a little bit of like Russian Jewish on her dad's side. And then mom is like straight up Irish Catholic, like to the point they, the Hellers actually got kicked out of Ireland. Like, they have a piece of the Blarney Stone. And nobody knows, like, why okay. they got kicked out of Ireland. I've heard of the Blarney Stone. What's the Blarney Stone? Uh, it's, so apparently, and I'm sure somebody listening to this is going to be like, that guy's full of complete shit. He does and not. as we're talking stones. right now, Brandon's got a full beard that's nice and red. Oh, ginger. Like, that was, <laughs> at first, I was like, oh, man, this is, what a terrible thing for my life. Like, but, you know. <laughs> Later on, I realized that, I don't know, I was kind of into it. So, yeah, uh, it's like some, supposed to be some like magical, magical stone type thing outside of Dublin. And I guess it, it's more of like a tourist thing now than anything else. Like the locals, because you're supposed to like kiss the Barney Stone and it's Mm -hmm. like good luck or something like that. But I think the locals actually like pee on it now. Oh, good. It's like (laughs) the tourists kiss their Exactly. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. But that weird connection, so my wife is Catholic, and uh, she she was really adamant on having, like, a nice, like, Catholic yeah. ceremony. And so Catholic ceremonies are beautiful, man. We went to the um, that Catholic church out in Geist. Uh, she's in, like, active in, like, the youth group out there. And we did our ceremony there and then went over to um, Laurel Hall. And I've heard of it. I've never been there. So Laurel Hall is, like... It's actually, I think, around, like, this Broad Ripple area, but it's kind of tucked in behind, like, Indianapolis Cathedral, and 
it used it has a weird history like used to be a girls school used to be like this indie think tank but um man it is absolutely gorgeous like we have pictures and stuff from there and it's like i mean you can't beat yeah that i've seen that place yeah you can't beat it in terms of like scenery and everything mm -hmm. so we got really really lucky in terms of um where we were we had like the one sunny day in march and nice. so um yeah man it was a fantastic day i was kind of glad we did both but um yeah it's cool because like i wish so I, I don't think we really had like the desire for that intimate setting she and i've been together since we were kids mm -hmm. so it's just i don't know if that makes a difference but it, it just our our whole thing was we wanted to have like a big fun thing for everybody that's been like part of our lives for the last 10 years right oh yeah absolutely so we did this big fucking wedding and then all of a sudden boom there goes 40 grand just like yes that. out just of gone. the window it's just gone and uh luckily it didn't all come out of our pocket we had yeah. some help from our parents but uh, we got married down at the library downtown oh um, nice it was like 90 degrees yeah humid as fuck all day and <sighs> then it started raining like yeah. right before our ceremony which was outside yeah. Rain for like 20 minutes, cooled down, and then it was sunny again. We had our ceremony. It was beautiful. That's, it, it couldn't have been any better. Uh, we had a great fucking time. I feel like, too, for with your personality, like you were destined to have, like, yeah. there there is no, like, subtle part of Jeremy McGrew. <laughs> like, it is all out or it is just nothing at all. Yeah. That's kind of, I've always been like, well, you know, I've always been like that. Oh, yeah. I just, I, I like attention. I mean, and that's not always a bad thing. Like, it served you well, like... For sure. And, I mean, yeah, like, I, you figured it out, and at the end of the day, like, I mean, if you're going to have a wedding, have a wedding. Yeah. And you most definitely did that. Yeah, we did. And it's a... Uh, like, so I, along the way, I definitely had to get humbled a lot. Like, we were just talking about, like, entrepreneurship and how humbling that, that is. Yeah. So, like, I still have, like, the, um, the attention-seeking make a lot of noise yeah. component to my personality but i've also been humbled to the fact where i can like be tasteful about it now whereas i used to be just like not caring about anybody but you myself. <laughs> at one i think peak peak like jeremy mcgrew without a diminished ego was in high school when you showed up to like a movie theater wearing like those like bono like purple like sepia tone sunglasses i don't remember <laughs> Oh, I do, because I was like, I kind of sat down. I mean, I think it was my lack of confidence at that time. And so, I mean, I respected the hustle, but I was like, that is a confident man right there. Yeah. I, I remember the last year of, not, I don't want to stay too far down memory lane, but the last yeah. year of high school, I had a different, like, cartoon book bag for every day with a matching shirt. So, like, I had SpongeBob book bag with a SpongeBob t-shirt. These are all kids' things, so I'm, like, wearing medium to school. Oh, Basically yeah. a damn crop top, but. Yeah. Hey man, I was shredded, so it's cool. Oh yeah, no, you got <laughs> like you got big and stuff towards the end, but yeah, that was a uh, I don't know. I think the the piece of uh, humble pie definitely served us both well. Like that's the beautiful thing about the beautiful thing about the army. I think that if you have the right personality and the right amount of like self awareness and self confidence, army is always going to serve you a slice mm -hmm. of humble pie. Yeah. Like when I was lucky enough to work with. Uh, 20th group like I I won't have any reservations about telling people that I like I just didn't make it mm -hmm. and you know it's a screening process that worked exactly the way it was supposed to and I realized that I had images of being a Green Beret that were not what it was 
and which to me says like a lot because I know how intense you are. Yeah, I know. Like I know how intense you. Are. Even gym. I remember like high school gym class playing what, field hockey. Yeah, Ben is just going crazy, man, knocking motherfuckers <laughs> yeah. over just to get the win. I love it. No, I had. Uh, yeah, I had like. I kind of joke to my wife that, like, I have two speeds, like, there's walk and kill. And so it's like, <laughs> you know, I, and that's why, like, rec sports were always really hard for me because it was like, I, like, if I'm not, if we're going to play the game, I'm going to play the game and I'm going to win. Yes. Or we're just going to have fun and, like, we're going to drink beer while we're playing kickball. It's just a game, fucker. Yeah. It's yeah. just a game, fucker. <laughs> I think, I think in general, we need more of that, though. Like, too many, it's just, I don't want to go down this road. I do this every fucking episode and talk yeah. about the problems with America today. But goddamn, too many soft motherfuckers. And that's, I think, what what I really appreciated about that community was it wasn't even like a, like, it's a community that respects self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So it values more than anything else, like, you got to be hard. Because, I mean, the mission of Special Forces a lot of times is to, like, you are your own support. So Mm -hmm. you're going to go in the middle of, like, a Niger or a country like that. And you might be, like, after uh, 9-11, like, they dropped the 12-man ODA into northern Afghanistan. ODA. uh, Operational Detachment Alpha. So that is a 12-man special forces team that's comprised of, like, commo guys, um, like, construction slash demo guys, weapons guys, and a couple, like, a captain who has some experience and, like, a senior, like, non-commissioned officer, like, like a... Uh, sergeant first class somebody with a lot of time in the army that knows how to like manage egos and people that type of thing and those dudes straight up like organized a resistance against like the taliban and like took over like parts of the country like 12 dudes wow and some of the guys i met <laughs> that's in, bad as hell <laughs> oh yeah dude and some of the guys i met in niger uh this one guy <laughs> dude's name is johan and he works He's on what's called like a special operations like civil affairs team, and those dudes get tasked out to like um, shape like the political landscape. So, like they're basically inserted into a situation, and they get told, "Hey, find out who the key players are, and like learn how how do we like move those levers, and how do we get stuff working in our favor." And like you can have a four man team that can like if it's like a third world country like you can straight up start to like influence policy wow as a four-man team and you think it's an exaggeration until you see them work but the type of people that make it through this process dude they are mountains of like i don't think it's the fact that i like think that i am like i respect i internally feel good about the amount of motivation i have the amount of but i also now realize that there is a whole other gear And there is a whole other level of dedication and intensity and ability that is like, I mean, when you go to like selection and stuff and you have to prepare yourself for doing this type of a job, I mean, it's basically like one week of like physical assessments. So you'll put a hundred pound ruck on your back, um, like basically a hundred pound backpack with like a kind of shitty plastic frame and you have to do like a six mile ruck march a 12 mile ruck march both are timed you have to do a six mile run an eight mile run and then you basically have to do with this like yeah an eight mile run an eight mile without the pack though. okay without the, <laughs> the runs are not with the pack okay but 
it's hard because you have to be strong. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be strong to be able to move that pack mm-hmm. that quickly. But you also have to be fast. Like I was, I think like 190 pounds when I went there and I could with a hundred pound pack walk 12 miles in two and a half hours and could still run like a 37 minute five mile. And you then, got a big, you got a strong frame. Like you're a strong dude. It, yeah, it was, uh, like and it's hard to like balance all that but then the second week <laughs> the second week they ship you out to um a place in North Carolina and you are walking for 8 to 10 hours a day with a 100 pound pack on your back and it when i was there in june it's oh, like man. 97 degrees like 100 degrees the whole time and like north carolina luckily is pretty open uh, but they have these draws and dude, when you get into a draw, like it was like, it's this like soupy, mucky, tangle foot infested, just like heart of fucking darkness <laughs> you get stuck in where like, I'm talking at my lowest point, like I still have a scar from where I just took this like rubber rifle. Cause you're always carrying a rifle mm-hmm. at all times. Mm-hmm. And just shotgun that thing into a tree, just like motherfucker, like complete <laughs> mental breakdown. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't make it past the land nav week because um, you're you're not allowed to be on roads, so everything has to be cross country, and you're only navigating with a map and compass. Wow. And the final event is called the star exam, and the shortest leg you're gonna do, navigating with only a map and compass, and you start at midnight. Um, the shortest leg you'll get is six kilometers and the longest is like 12 kilometers. And like, like I said, they start you at midnight. And so you're doing this in total darkness and headlamps aren't authorized. So you're walking in the dark the whole time. The only thing you can turn on your headlamp to do is look at your map. Hmm. And so, uh, like I got within 50 feet of a road, which is a like kicked out of selection offense. Oh really? Yeah. And so, um, definitely don't be a roadkill if you go. It, but then the third week is the hardest week. Excuse me. The third week is team week. And so basically, you get put onto a 12-man team. And it's kind of cool because they try and like build the culture of special forces early. So you, um, you're only allowed to call each other by your roster number. Because the whole time you're getting, like I was 23. So the only you have to call each other like twenty three seventy one whatever, or you use first names, because they want you to have like that closeness, mm-hmm. that cohesiveness. But I'm talking, dude. They'll like, they'll have you move like, and keep in mind everything you've done the first two weeks. That's only there to break down your body to the point that you and you're not allowed to use painkillers. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed. There is no ibuprofen. If you get medical attention, it has to be from these like crusty ass. Uh, mm-hmm. like special forces medics that like they want you to fail more than anything in the world huh. not because they have like malintent but because they want you to pass with them having that attitude yeah and makes it harder yeah it yeah. makes it harder and so which in turn makes you harder it's kind of so, like the a players only like playing with a players do it it is a whole when you get to that third week the caliber of person you are surrounded by. Like I tell people all the time, like when I was working with that group of people and a lot of the guys I was with, like almost all of them made it onto an ODA. So that's when I say ODA, obviously I mean like a special forces team. And 
I was humbled every day that I showed up because I've gone like my whole life being like, if not exceptional, like, like I was recognized like, yeah, that dude's a hard worker. And there I was average sauce. And (laughs) it's like when you can be surrounded by that, which I wish more people had that experience, you like excuses go away and you realize like, people have this whole other gear that you just have to have like the courage to dig down to. Mm -hmm. And when you find that it is like life changing because you realize like a lot of people's limits are, and it's not like malicious. Like a lot of people just don't get pushed that hard. But when you are forced to, you know, be sleep deprived, be calorie deprived to, and then still have to perform and just have somebody like look at you and say like, everybody's done it man everybody here has done that then it changes your perspective on hard yeah i bet and to hear you say this like you were just saying you've always been known as a hard worker like yeah an exceptionally hard worker to hear you say that i think like i like to think i'm mentally tough and can can do things but like i'm not at your level of that <laughs> I for, appreciate to hear that, man. you say that that's just like i can't imagine what these fuckers are like dude and but it was um I think a lot of guys go through that process and for a while I kind of fell into this like siren song of like thinking that I was like less because I hadn't made it through that. But what I realized at the end of the day was that was the most valuable experience that, you know, the hardest experiences of our lives are often the most formative and foundational. And I really realized that like stepping up to the plate, like, and not giving myself those excuses mm-hmm. and just saying like, yeah, man, I didn't make it, but I have some good stories about not making it. And mm-hmm. I met some pretty remarkable people, M- like nine out of 10 people that aren't like just a damaged motherfucker. That's just angry at the world. will hear that and think, you know what, man, like good on you. Like yeah. you stepped up to the plate and you swung. And even if you struck out, you still try to get in the majors, man. Yeah. Can you imagine if you didn't go through that? Like, what what would be different about you now if you didn't go through that? Um, I think I would, I would have, I would believe that I am way more special than I am, and I would believe that, like, I would have made a lot more excuses, like, um, because when you go through that experience, what you see a lot of the time is uh, there was a really great quote from a guy who was in a special forces team where he says, at some point in your life, you are going to come toe to toe with your own morality and you're going to mortality. mortality. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Both Oops. probably. Yeah. <laughs> really. But your own mortality and you're going to realize the very real limits of your abilities and the fact that there's nothing you can do at that moment to change it. But then you're going to have people to your left and right who are going to step in, pull you through that experience and say, no matter what, like, I have your back, man. And to be around that caliber of person was like, like life changing. Like I mentioned, you know, I've kind of like, I'm sure we'll get into the dad thing at some point, but that was a big reason why I think I approached that situation the way I did, because, you know, and even like, I had to go through that before I went to sniper school. And so I had like my experiences at selection. Like there was one day, man, I remember, uh, like I said, I started at midnight. Um, I didn't find my first point on this. Like you have to find four points on the star exam each day. 
So I started at midnight, didn't find my first point until like 6.30 in the morning because I heard the dude unzip his tent. And so I went over, like I got my next point, which was six kilometers away, and moved kind of slow. I had 40 minutes left to move another like 7K, and I was like black on water. So I was completely out of all fluids. And keep in mind, like, it's the middle of June. I've been walking right. around since midnight, and, like, your feet are blistered, like, torn apart. Like, think about how bad my skin is walking around with that on my back. Like, and I just, like, fuck it. Like, if I'm not going to try, then why the fuck am I here? Mm-hmm. And just started running. And it was, like, it was kind of cool because I think I actually drifted, like, closer than 50 meters to a road, or 50 feet, whatever. And these SF dudes, like, in their little sweet, souped-up, soft buggies, like, dune buggies, were, like, right beside me, like, looking over, like, is this guy going to, like, get closer? But I think it was kind of like a, like, that dude's moving. Like, I kind of (laughs) respect the hustle. So they just, like, followed along, and then they sped off. And I made it with, like, ten minutes to go. Wow. And. Damn, you must have been booking it. Yeah, dude, I it. Well, that was the good thing about having all that marathon training, like leading into the pipeline. Like most dudes come in as a huge motherfucker. Wait, all they that learned marathon training. You were training marathons before that. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, know that. dude, I did um, <laughs> four marathons, a fifty k, and a half Ironman. Jesus, I don't want to get off track. Keep going. Yeah, with this no, story. no. So I get Holy in. Um, I finally get into the like the point sitter, and these are like former or current SF dudes and SF. Special forces. So they are the saltiest looking dudes in the world. And like, keep in mind, like I feel like what I have done has been pretty awesome. I'm like, yeah, I made it. And so I walk over and I'm like, you know, it's like the movie where I'm kind of like limping in and this guy just completely dispassionate, like (laughs) no emotion on his face is just like scorecard. Like I set it into his hand. Wait, where's the music? Where's like the crowd celebrating? No, could not give him a fuck less. And so he holds it. He's like, these are your next grid coordinates. Plot your point. Show me where it is. And like, I have 10 minutes left and this, but there is no like, yeah, I mean, if you need water, if you need this or that, it's like, it was literally like, I could see where the water was and he handed me my stuff. I plotted the point. I gave it to him. He's like, all right, well, looks like you need to start moving. (laughs) And so I just kind of, like, ran off into the woods like I was going to go find that point, and I just sat down. I was like, man, I've got, like, five minutes left, and I'm not about to just, like... Rudy was cool because he tried so hard, but he was also kind of an idiot. <laughs> like, I, I was not looking to impress anybody at that point. Yeah. But, um, yeah, man, it... Like, you go through all of that, and um, you just come out of it like a... I, I think a more complete version of yourself because it's like you you get into like some when you have that calorie depth that sleep depth that everything like you find some really dark parts of yourself mm-hmm. and you have to just go toe to toe with it and there isn't like there's no beating around the fact that it's like you know like I had to look at myself and be like, you know, I get a little too emotional sometimes. Sometimes when stress gets hard, I can act out as like a masking mechanism, that type of stuff. And it was like, there was no room for that. There is no excuse for that. There is no anything for that. There is only you accomplish it or you do not. And I, 
you know, I'm comfortable 100% with myself saying, like, yeah, man, I didn't, I didn't make it. But the guys that did, like, hats off. And the guys that are going to try it in the future, like, just buckle up. Yeah. Because it's luck. a good ride. But, dude, I met guys that – I met a guy who went through that entire pipeline. The SF pipeline's two years total. Um, guy's name's uh, Ben. I won't get into his last name because he's on an active ODA mm-hmm. right now. But Ben did – went through the entire two-year pipeline as an officer so it's even harder for them gets to the end of the officer school and they decide his personality isn't good so they kick him out oh he reduces himself voluntarily from captain to sergeant which is a giant pay drop like every prestige pay everything but he wants to be on an oda that bad Mm -hmm. and goes through the pipeline again another two years as an enlisted guy and is now on a team and that's just his per there was there was no like there was never a like i'm not gonna make it Mm -hmm. moment in his head because he's just that hard of a dude like we i would have a whole ruck full of like creature comforts and stuff and this dude would go into the woods with like a backpack full of 40 pounds of rocks and like a like a nalgene and like an MRE, which is like our bag meals. And that was just like how he lived. Like when it was time to go to sleep at night, he'd just like lay on the ground. Wow, that's hard as fuck. <laughs> yeah, he just, I mean, you meet those types of people. But like I said, I mean, I went into like sniper school after that, having had those experiences and I think was a lot, I was able to be more of a leader because mm-hmm. of it as opposed to just being like a dude that like crawled through. Right. Why do you think that is? Why? Do you, what effect did that have on your leadership? Uh, you, like, I think if you come at it the wrong way and you come at it from a, like, me, my, and I perspective, you can come out of that experience with, like, a really, like, insular, self-protecting type attitude. Mm-hmm. But if you come out of that with, like, a, like, I'm a member of the team and my job is to be on a member, like, a good performing member of a team, like, you know how good the team would the teams be if everyone were just like me and when you come into it with that mindset and that empathy for like understanding what types of struggles people are having and understanding where they're at mentally and understanding that you know they may not be having a good day today Mm -hmm. but i guarantee you're going to be having a bad day in a few days and you're going to need them then Mm -hmm. and so it's on you to like reach out and pull that person into your sphere and be like hey man I get you're having a shitty time right now, but, like, come over here. Like, I'm going to give you some of my extra food. Like, I'm going to give you, like, I don't really dip because my family history is stuff, but I'm like, I'm going to give you some caffeine pills. Like, we'll all, why don't you sit down a little bit, take, like, a 10-minute cat nap, and I'll, like, work your target, something like that. And you just learn that, like, there's, like, the modern, like, American version of a team, which is, like, showing out on Instagram and wanting to be that dude. And mm-hmm. then there's like a, I am legitimately interested in improving the human terrain around me type member of a team. And when you can come into it with that mindset of regardless of how it helps me, I'm going to help you because I think that you're going to be that dude for someone else down the road. If I set a good enough example, like when you can come into it with that mindset and especially at sniper school, cause mm-hmm. it's like, it is contrary to popular belief a really big like team school okay um when you go into it with that mindset man it, it changes everything 
So you went to sniper school. What's the outcome of sniper school? So are, are you, mm. I'm completely ignorant in this. So are, now are you a sniper? Or yeah, you, school yeah, qualified okay. sniper. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so, um, dude, sniper school is awesome. It's uh, it's six weeks long, but you learn how to do everything from like, I think I actually have some pictures on here that I can kind of talk about and stuff. But when you go to sniper school, like you go to it as a dude that has like some marksmanship training, essentially. So the first event you do is what's called a shoot in. And so the shoot in is basically like, yeah, there's a good one. So like the shoot in basically is they have five, like one inch sized like circles stacked one on top of the other and you get 25 rounds from 25 meters with an m4 and you have to put them all inside of that like one inch circle and you're using iron sights like no magnification on your optics which isn't really hard you just have to have like good fundamentals so like good breathing good trigger squeeze that type of thing uh but then once they know you have a good trigger squeeze that's when like the hard stuff begins so that's like um I want to I want to stop you there. Go ahead. So we're talking tri- trigger squeeze. This is just a personal question. Um, yeah. So like you in the movies, all right? I, yeah. I get movies in real life are totally different. No. In the movies, they're always you know you take that you let that breath out. What's the importance of like being completely still other than the trigger finger? Yeah. So when you when you like do that, like you want to shoot at the bottom of your natural breathing cycle. So what that does is when you breathe in and out, your chest is rising and falling. So your reticle, which is like your crosshairs, your reticle is gonna kind of naturally move up and down. When you go, it settles mm-hmm. at the bottom of that natural breathing cycle. And so you're basically learning to like calm the body down and make it perfectly still so that, cause your whole idea is you wanna bring that trigger finger like straight 90 degrees back so the recoil goes perfectly Mm -hmm. into your body like 90 degrees everything's in line and you're going to send the most accurate shot downrange you know because worse comes to worse you got to put around at like one minute of angle so like from 100 meters like you got to put around into like a one inch square (laughs) and not only like a one inch square but like when we zero our weapons from 100 meters you would aim at like the top left corner of a one inch square so you're trying to like punch like corners out of that square and um yeah man it's it's a whole other level of like high standards when it comes to accuracy that is just i mean just think of for people that listen just think of that 100 meters one inch square oh dude i haven't even gotten into like the hard stuff. Oh, okay. Well, let's keep going then. Dude, that is day 1. That's day 1. Okay, that's day that's 1. That's like day 1. Okay. Uh, and so from there the first 3 weeks of sniper school or what's called known distance so you know exactly which distance you're shooting at which everyone's like okay well they're teaching you fundamentals no they're getting your spotter good so the spotter is the guy who sits behind the sniper and he's going to be the one that has like uh here we go i've got a picture i think of cam in here no i don't okay so the spotter sits like kind of at like right behind you Mm -hmm. and he's gonna be on like a super high power piece of magnification glass and he's gonna like if you look like out of the window or something and you see like some trees move or you see like some smoke blowing a certain way he's got a read 
what that wind is doing, and he's got to adjust your bullet based off of that. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but he has to range the target, and given that range, he has to compensate for bullet drop, so he's constantly giving you, as the shooter, adjustments to make on the gun. Mm -hmm. And so... Is he making these calculations on the fly in his head? Or? Yeah. Ideally, yeah. if you've got a good spotter, they're doing this stuff in their head. Okay. And so, like, your whole job when you're behind the gun is to squeeze a trigger mm -hmm. and react. And the whole job of the spotter is to do everything else. Okay. And so, the first three weeks are, like, spotter, like spotter training. So, you're learning, like, how to read wind. And ideally, like, from, I mean, even from, like, zero to like 800 meters you have to be able to look out and understand like what the wind is doing like at the target and if there's like nothing to judge the wind off of you can actually use like you know like in the summer when heat comes off the top of a car mm -hmm. they call that mirage mm -hmm. and you can actually judge which really? way the wind is going and how fast just That's based it. on what mirage looks like wow and so like i failed sniper school the first time i went because i wasn't uh very good with wind so like i bought a wind meter like was a nerd like standing outside like making notes about the wind and stuff you hear that folks <laughs> that's a great lesson yeah that's a great fucking lesson dude it it was like and i told you like you know i grew up with my mom and it was like you can either feel sorry for yourself or you can make yourself better mm -hmm. and it was a hundred percent that it was like i bought the wind meter i went outside and i would literally just study like the difference like okay if i am looking at something and the branches are generally moving one to two inches i know that is a five to seven mile an hour wind if they're moving three to four inches that's going to be between about seven to eleven miles an hour and then like a flag if it's flapping kind of like 45 degree angle that's like seven to eleven and if it's more of like straight and it's kind of going like mm -hmm. lazily flapping you're looking at like 12 plus and you have to be able to do all that stuff like in your head like in a stressful situation right yeah <laughs> probably in in some situations bullets flying oh yeah around you and that's they call it like the two-way range so everything changes when you're on a range that <laughs> yeah. goes both ways one <laughs> has a plan until they get hit in the mouth that yeah thing. yeah and so like the first like hard part of sniper school where I failed out was on unknown distance shoots. So situation is you have seven and a half minutes. Okay. And they'll go, okay, your targets are like alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta echo. And okay. So you write all those down and ideally you're going to dress them down top to bottom. And so they'll go eyes up. And you're going to have targets from 300 meters out to 700 meters with like a 308, um, they call it a gas gun, so like a M4 style like 308 rifle and 308's a caliber. So you have to identify those targets. You have to use measurements inside of your optic to figure out what range those targets are at. You have to also judge what the wind is doing at those targets. And then you have to engage them and get hits from, like, starting at the closest, moving to the furthest. And you have, like, seven and a half minutes to figure all this out. This is with it. your spotter? Uh, yeah, so it's with your spotter. Each person, like, they'll do seven and a half minutes with one guy, and they'll do seven and a half minutes with the next guy, and you have to have an overall average of 70%. Okay. So I didn't pass the first time I did it in 2014, which was rough. 
And then 2018, I went back after having done the SF thing with um, a guy I just got along with a lot better. Um, Cam Ball, if you're listening, I love you. But um, this guy, you basically get behind the gun and you just figure it out. And man, when you pass, it's like you're like at that point you have to like seriously mess up to get kicked out of sniper school but record fire one is like the event that sends most people home and once you pass that man it's like pure joy what does that do for your confidence like you can just walk into a restaurant and be like, yo i'm a sniper what's up <laughs> it's i it's the for like five minutes when you graduate school you feel like that and then you meet guys that have like done the job overseas and stuff right, and you're yeah, like oh i'm gonna shut the fuck up now that's the best part is like you get this fucking like high where you've accomplished something that like so few people have done and then you yeah. look ahead and it's like this in business too yeah so like i've accomplished this i'm now at this earning level and yeah I look up and like man that dude spends that much on dinner every night exactly like, <laughs> so it's like you feel great about yourself but then as long as you keep your eye up and you know on the next target yeah then it just humbles you right back exactly and that was like uh that was like a big lesson leaving there because like it only gets progressively harder like there's a qualification that goes out to like uh i think 1300 meters and (laughs) do you and like you 1300 meters is that like a you're about 300 meters short of a mile yeah wow and you like i mean the bullet's literally in the air for like i think five or six seconds at that point so you shoot the gun and then you're just waiting waiting fingers crossed waiting damn and then it hits but you leave and then you think okay well i passed school i've done that and a lot of guys want to like rest on their laurels and just like Mm -hmm. have their little sniper stuff memorabilia and regalia in their house and like that's like their you know that's like their they're like high school party story. Like, yeah, you remember that time I threw that game-winning pass? Yeah. And that's like their story from right. the rest of their career. And then you got the guys that are like, okay. Don't want to be that guy. No. You're like, I, I passed this. Now it's time to, one, maintain the skill set. Mm-hmm. And, two, improve the skill set. And, and we call it, like, emblazon our craft. So, okay. like, embellish it, like, improve it, and just make it as good as it can be. So, what keeps you what keeps you going and like wanting to get better is it just something that's like you've ingrained into yourself at this point you just want to keep going or is it just what it what is it i has it always been like that for you no man i um and i guess is probably a good time to get into it like i think it was um like i always kind of had a little bit of that uh like i think you know i mean you've been the same way too and you always have had that like mindset for self-improvement and like Mm -hmm. improving yourself and that type of thing and i think when like when my dad died it was i finally realized like it gives you a sense of like there is actually an end of the road and there is a point where the book like the book closes it's done and you just can't do anymore Mm -hmm. and like i think with the abundance of blessings that I was born with, with a dad, you know, who had a fantastic job, with a mom who had a great job and a high sense of discipline, with all of that and all the things that I've been given, to just, like, squander that by sitting on my laurels and not pass as much of that along as I can, that's it's a waste. 
yeah. like that I mean what are like what are you even doing at that point like it's like I wouldn't call it selfish because I think there is a point where you can just be like you know what like I've done my part it, it can be though <laughs> like if it, I mean for me like for myself if, if I stopped whenever I have so much more that I could go and do like who's being hurt by that or who could possibly not get to where they need to go because I didn't do my part to get as far as I can go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just, so it can be selfish. I think it's like a, I think it's our duty personally. I, yeah. And I steal this from Grant Cardone. It's, it's my duty to be successful. Like I have to be, otherwise yeah. I'm not living up to the gift that I was given. Well, I mean, like you look at it and it's, um, I think when I, when I taught, that was one of the things that, when I taught, that was one of the things that I tried to get across. Like, we really do have, like, like kids do not have a whole lot of good, like, role models. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, like, what they consume on, like, a social media platform, like, a this or that, like, when they're at that young age of, like, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, when they're highly impressionable, they're on a platform that is specifically designed to advertise to promote, to get them to consume. Mm-hmm. And I really think it would be a giant shame if we raise an entire generation of people who thought that their their happiness is going to come from, like, showing out and mm-hmm. being that dude, like, being the dude and projecting, like, that. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with having masculinity and, like, promoting that and, like, being proud of that, but, like, going about it, like, the wrong way. I think there's a lot of incongruency yeah in these things that you're talking about yeah like i would rather so like you can you can't really tell if somebody's done anything from their instagram post or no. not you can just see what their instagram post says it's like 90 percent bullshit right yeah <laughs> and i've been i got off social media like a month and a half ago holy shit so good for my brain dude same here <laughs> i got i watched that uh like the social dilemma yeah and i i think i just noticed that i was people that i like loved and oh, like dude, genuinely about cared about because that's me too yeah like man <laughs> like people i love like you just said genuinely care about i just like i hate you right like not, that's a little strong but like i can't even listen to you right now because i'm so ingrained in this way of thinking yeah per, like election shit yeah i'm so ingrained in this right now that i can't even listen to you like i don't want to hear it yeah and it's like people like that i would see in like everyday life and be be normal but because it's online and you can't decipher like what's real what's not it's just yeah so i I had to get off there and plus i'm just like right now i'm doing 75 hard i told you about that yeah yeah yeah. um and that's like the best i fucking love it so much but um i'm just like focused on me i have three goals i'm trying to accomplish before i get back on social media okay i'm not getting back until i accomplish them and i'm moving very well in all three of them so what are they because i you're you may have Set them on the podcast before. I don't think I've no, I don't think I have. Maybe I have. I don't know. Um, I want to get under 12% body fat. Like right now, I'm just under 13. Nice. Um, I wanted to bring in my first 25k for the year, and then I'm launching another just side hustle. Nice, man. That's uh, I'm pretty excited about. It's a little clothing brand for little gentlemen. So, little, little gentlemen, yeah, little kids' suits. Here, I'll show you, dude. Yes, and I think that's what like when you when you get off of some of that stuff and you realize the value of like giving yourself that resistance it like it 
it changes you for the better, but it also helps you interact with people in a lot better way. Agreed. And it like I would much rather accomplish yes. it in real life than just like post shit online. And like I like this uh, the podcasting because it's like real conversations, and you, you yeah. can bullshit a Instagram post or a bunch of tweets. You can't bullshit a conversation. Man, in that... At least not a long one. Exactly. And I think that, one, I love all of this. Yeah, isn't that great? Oh, my God. Yes. Little gentlemen. So, they're little suits for little boys. It's called Peaky Romans. So, it's for Peaky my son. Peaky Romans. Yeah. And it's just like Prohibition era clothing. Kids Dude. need to be wearing suits more, man. I like that. And <laughs> I... Yeah. No, I like that, man. And that's I, it's very on-brand for Jeremy McGrew. Yes, yes, That's yes. one of my favorite things yeah. about you, man. <laughs> Never miss a chance to dress up. Yeah. I haven't been doing it so much, but I've I bought a few new suits at the end of last year because I like the last couple of years. Like, I think I've had it in my head where it's like, oh yeah, I'm working for myself. I can just wear sweatpants every day. But then like I'm not my best self whenever I'm dressed in sweatpants. I'm my best self whenever I'm looking, feeling good. Exactly. And so I'm trying trying to get back on that train. And I think there is. I mean, that's one of the things I do like about you know wearing like because I go to work in a uniform. Yeah. And I think that. You know, when I have, like, a good haircut, when I do all that, like... And they probably don't allow you to look slovenly, right? You can't yeah. look like a slob. No, I... You have, like, you have those dudes that let themselves go. Like, they got the gut that's, like, tugging on their uniform. Yeah. But it it says a lot about a person, and it may not outwardly affect how people interact with them, but you can bet that it comes up in conversations when it 100%. comes time for, like, promotions, schools. Like, let's just put it this way, like... Dudes at sniper school and dudes at selection and dudes in that community, like, they will, they'll look rough, like, in the field and stuff, but when it comes time to look good, they look good. Good. And they know how to distinguish between the appropriate time for both. Well, it raises the level of the the game, of the people around you, too. Like, if I'm walking in looking like a weak little vagina then exactly other people can feel fine about looking like that too when they're not living up to their best but if i walk in i got some guns i'm fucking looking yoked i'm shredded i look great in this suit other people are going to raise their game too yeah because they don't want to be left behind well and that was like um like i kind of mentioned a little like a couple minutes ago like when i worked and i was teaching and like i worked in a i coached middle school wrestling for a little bit and I think I realized like how much we can truly like impact the next generation doing that. Cause I even remember telling them like, you know, they kind of gave us some pushback one day on like, you know, why do you guys push us so hard? And why? Cause I mean, dude, I'm not even kidding outside of selection workouts. That middle school wrestling program was the hardest workouts. I've like, I vomited one point. Dude, wrestlers are fucking next <laughs> yes. level. If I have a daughter, I hope she ends up with some dude that wrestled because those are yes. like the salt of the earth hard workers dude they so these like middle schoolers were kind of complaining about some of the stuff we had them do and i just kind of told them like you know when you have that like real profound thought that just comes right off the top exactly the way you want to yes. and i was like look around you guys you are surrounded by people that are going to go their entire lives being mediocre Mm-hmm. We're holding you to a standard right now that you don't know how to hold yourself to. Yep. And you don't understand the value of holding yourself God, to. God, that's so good. And they're like, they kind of are looking at me like, and I'm like, one day Dude, you're going to stand in front I'm of a I'm interrupting you because I love, that was amazing. That's like profound. Dude, seriously. And it was like, I kind of looked at them like one day after 
all this struggle and all this sacrifice, you're going to look yourself in the mirror and you're going to be genuinely no bullshit proud of the person that you are. And then that's when our high school program is going to take you, do the exact same thing again, push you way harder than you thought you could have been pushed. And you're going to look at yourself again in the mirror and realize the value of all that hard work. And that's, those are the people that are going to leave school with the education that they needed to get. Amen. Amen. And it's the same thing like with a teacher. Like you look back, the best teachers that you ever had weren't the ones that just let you do whatever you wanted. Yeah. They're the ones that you fucking maybe hated during the class. And then afterwards, like, wow, I'm really glad I had that teacher because I learned so much and I raised my game to the next level because I was required to. And that, I think, is why I realized the value of like, um, you know, I we won't like dive into the whole high school thing again because I know that's super cringy for a lot of people. But like Josh Gerber and like some of the coaches that we had, like, uh, like I visit, like I can remember back to times that like I did not want to do stuff, but like that dude would call you out if you weren't showing out the way you needed to, and he held himself to such a high standard of conduct. Yeah, that I don't think I realized. Like when I left high school. And I just thought that, like, the standard we were held to was, like, everybody's experience. Mm-hmm. And then you look around, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. not the case at all. And, I mean, that he was pretty young then. He was probably, the, like, the age that we are now. He was at yeah. that age. But now this dude was – he was an assistant for us. But now he's, like, the head coach, and, like, their program's doing really well, aren't they? Yeah. Like, that's – that just his energy, his discipline infected the entire program for this school. Yeah. And – you realize, like, you know, you had guys like those, you know, Chandler Harnish being, like, a cult for a little bit is kind of like a a known thing. But you look at that class of guys that graduated and just the caliber of, like, if you think about it, man, like, you had Harnish, was a high school, like, mm-hmm. an NFL quarterback. You had uh, Rupright, who went into Air Force Special Operations and, and finance and did well in both. Mm-hmm. You got Parker, MLB pitcher, like all of those dudes coming from that class, like, like Hoopengarner, I think Cole Hoopengarner, I think is about to be an air force pilot, like flying fighter jets. Whoa. And that's cool. You look at those guys and realize like, it was just, there's no like secret formula. Mm -hmm. There's no like, you know, self-help book. There's no anything like it's literally just looking at yourself in the mirror and saying what I did today was good. But five percent. How mm. can I improve five percent of what I'm doing? It's pretty cool how they had like, and their group was like they were all they fed off of that. Like everybody in that little group that we're talking about, like they just fed off it, and they all held each other to a higher standard. Yeah, that goes for any team, like any group of people that you're around. You're going to adopt the standards of the people around you. Period. Yeah. Like, no matter how hard a worker you think you are, if you're hanging out with four bums, you're going to become the fifth bum. Yep. Dude, in that, uh, I think I even thought about that. So, like, when I was in Africa, one of the things that struck me about Niger was, like, this, um, I don't know how to describe it other than, like, a like an ingrained sense of hopelessness. Wow. Like, you look at a group of people who have been so, like, oppressed who have been so neglected like their whole government works on like embezzlement and fraud and like it's commonly known when you're like um 
when you're like when you get into a position of power like the presidency whatever like the whole mo is like embezzle 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 get what you can for your own sake while you can mm-hmm. and which is in line with human nature if not checked. yeah and the thing is like you know these people like after as a population being treated like that for so long like if i like say i finish this coffee cup like when i get done with it i would just throw it on the side of the road like people when they needed to use the bathroom would literally just like walk to a part of the sidewalk and just like piss on a building (laughs) and like i've done that before but yeah (laughs) not every day exactly and it's but it's not like when you're walking to a business meeting or like you'd look and you'd see like kids like squatting and like taking a crap in the river and then you go from like there and i spent time on ramstein air force base before i came back and you look at an entire base that at 5 p.m if you were outside like um uh tap starts playing and every single person no matter what they're doing has the internal discipline to stop come to the position of attention look at the flag and you stand there for taps Tense. And I, uh, so like you think like what they play at like military funerals, that type of stuff, but yeah. it's like a kind of like, that's how, just how military bases close the duty day. Okay. And you realize like in a country like there where people will just take trash and throw it on the side of the road, you then go to a base where people have an appreciation for discipline to the level that we will all stop what we're doing, look at the flag. And it's not like a like a nationalism or like a fascism or like whatever, like a, you know, like a Heil Hitler type thing. It's like a look at what we have Mm -hmm. and look at the type of people that we have in our organization. And we may have like, you know, qualms and stuff that's wrong and things we can improve on, but we can at least appreciate what we do have. Yeah. And, you know, I think we kind of like not – like, I think we kind of lose sight of some of that and, like, modern what's going on now. But Agreed. it's just sad to me because we really do. Like, we, dude, if when you're born in the United States of America, you have such a leg up. Like, people, <laughs> people around the world see our blue passport, and that thing is like a power move. When you take a blue United States of America passport out of your pocket and 90% of the world people notice and people mm-hmm. respect what that stands for and what that means. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're not going to get too many. I've never gone to a country like that. I've only been out of the country a couple of times and it was to all expense paid resort. Yeah. So it's quite yeah. different, but like you're not going to talk to people that have been to like where you just came from that are going to say, yeah, America sucks. You're just yeah. not going to dude it. Um, like I, so I actually got to be friends with a guy over in Niger who was, um, his name's Ishmael, and his dad is, like, the head of a confederation, which, you know, you know, for shame, bad connotations when you say that here, but their confederation in Niger, it was for the uh, Toreg people in the northern part of Niger, um, specifically around Agadez, and it's basically all these tribes who agree to, like, a set, set of, like, rules, standards, everything. Like, this dude was in charge of, like, his dad's in charge of, like, 500,000 people. Mm-hmm. And he even said, like, that's the reason I like talking to Americans, because you guys believe that change and improvement is possible. Right. You don't just have the sense of, like, well, that's just how it is. It is, but, yeah. And that's how it's going to be. It's like, no, we can affect this. Like, Mm -hmm. 
we ask questions like how can we improve this how can we make a difference how can we it's like it's just motivating as opposed to just accepting fraud waste and abuse as the norm right i think i i can see how we're very obviously this is not new news we're very divided yeah in america right now and i think there's um strong mind virus on both sides yeah but i think the what we're falling prisoner to right now is popular sentiment and yeah. the rule of the crowd, the mob rule of the crowd. Yep. Which is a hundred percent fact that humans do not operate intelligently under the influence no. of a mob. No, they do not. That's why we built the electoral college. That's why we have the system that we have in place. They, they knew all this shit was going to happen. Yeah. We said the craziest fucking election and exchange of power. Yeah. Not the craziest ever. Cause there's believe it or not, there has been other ones that have been way worse than this. Yeah, they, the news doesn't tell you about, but we had the craziest exchange of power you could really have, and our system's still alive and well. Yeah, like, but people are still trying to change things because it doesn't make them feel good right now. Sorry, I was like running right. Before oh, me, you're so. you're fine. Um, and people are trying to change things that have that have been working. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason that we have this system in place, and just because they're we're not perfect. Like, there's never been a perfect nation. There never will be a perfect nation. Why? Because no. it's run by fucking human beings. Mm-hmm. I, my biggest frustration in the entire world right now is that we're trying to give up wisdom for our profound intellect that we think we have. Yeah, man. And that, I mean, I just wish that, and I think I was telling my wife this whenever I came back, like, when she asked, you know, kind of what was the biggest thing you took away from there? And it was, I wish that people could, I wish that people could kind of walk through, like, I wish they could just literally be put in a car and drive through, like, a Nigerian downtown, like, slum. Mm -hmm. And I wish they could see the, what, like, true poverty and suffering looks like. Mm -hmm. And understand that the systems and the institutions that we have in place, like, while not perfect, like, if we can at least put aside our differences and we can realize that there is a greater good to be worked for and there is, like, a greater... We have one of the most beautiful gifts in the world that is being in a country that, you know, we may not do the best job of it sometimes, but we try to make it... We try and give everyone an opportunity if you're willing to work for it. Mm-hmm. And I just think a lot of people get into this trap where they feel like we're owed this standard of living. Mm-hmm. And it's like... It took a lot of work to get to, to this. It took a lot of sacrifice by people way before you, and now we're trying to throw that shit away. And it just that just makes my blood boil. Yeah. And it's like, man, I mean, like you go to like a France or like some of these like developed countries that don't necessarily feel the same way, and it's like... I think there's a romance. There's definitely a romance around like, well, we could, we can do what these people are doing. But at the end of the, it's, mm-hmm. it's like it's fool's gold, man. Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't realize like how much worse it can get, and what, like I mean, I took a missions trip to Haiti before. Like I've been to different parts of like Mexico that aren't great. Um, you know, obviously the Niger trip and doing all that, and it's you come back here and it's like to just to not have to like look over your shoulder and not think about 
you know, am I going to the right gas station at the right time of day? Is the ATM going to steal my card and withdraw $200 from my account that I'm not going to get back just mm-hmm. because some dude at the bank is going to pocket it? Like, to know that we don't have to worry about that, that's something, man. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, I. It's an embarrassment of riches right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It. But at the end of the day, like, I don't think a lot of people are, I just think there's this, the allure of like having this like victim mentality is so strong mm. that you, th- <laughs> we, we fucking praise victims more than we do heroes. Yeah. Like and that is, in what world does that make sense? That is so fucking backwards. Yeah. And that was, um, because that was, I think what got me is it was like, I would go for runs in Niger like I said and it wasn't this like like people didn't look at me as like a target Mm -hmm. and people didn't look at me as like something to exploit like they were friendly like they were open they were kind they were all these things and like I got more people to like wave at me say hello like good morning good afternoon that type of stuff in Niger than I can in like parts of my own neighborhood Mm. and you know it just it's concerning and it makes you a little bit sad at the end of the day but at the same time you realize that that's just like not something you can i want to ask you like what is the what's the general so when we see this this stuff happening here in the united states it's just like i'm sure it's sad for most people but as somebody that's serving their country like you literally went to another country for a month like you sacrificed time with your wife, you sacrificed time that you could have been yeah. working on other things. You did it at the call of duty. And like what's it like for yourself and other people that are serving to see all this buffoonery? Uh it's definitely not necessarily like a, you know, and I'll preface that with, you know, I'm one guy, mm-hmm. then it's a really big force. Of course. Um but at the same time, the overall sentiment I get in my office is kind of like just a it's kind of a mix of like I just overall like disappointment mm-hmm. like you just you I mean the second you are in an office with all military personnel like you're around groups of people that have given up at the least 16 weeks of their life at the most you know years of their life mm-hmm. to decades. yeah decades of their life to You know, I say 16 weeks because that's the length of, like, infantry basic training, which Mm -hmm. was the shortest for a long time. It's 21 weeks now. Okay. So you have someone that said, I'm going to put my life on pause for 16 to 21 weeks, and I'm going to go learn how to be a soldier. And when you do that, it's not like a, we take you in and we put you up at the Radisson. Like, (laughs) it is like a, like, you're sleeping in barracks, like, there's no privacy, there's no anything you're just around people that have a different like mindset on what like what they're giving up and why they're doing that and i think it's just overall kind of like a like a lack of like you understand why people protest and do all that and you understand that they have a right to it and in a lot of ways that's why people raise their right hand is like i want people to have the ability to voice when they feel like something is wrong mm-hmm. But I also wish that people would, like I said, keep in mind a little bit of the the gift that we have. Yeah. 
And that I, overall, that's kind of the sentiment I feel like uh, a lot of the guys in the service have is it's like, look, you, what you're going to do is your own prerogative, mm-hmm. but just keep in the back of your head that like, you aren't owed this. Right. You, you aren't it, owed any of this. It can be both ways. There can be problems and we can be really fucking lucky to live here. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if it's like I said, there's like this siren song where we think that we can make it into this utopia and this, that, and the other, and it's just not the case. Like it's fool's gold. It like is. Like you just said, it's fool's gold. And I also think too, like you know, you brought up like you know your your son being born with like his issues and everything, and like you know, I watched my dad you know die from stage four colon cancer, and I just think when you when you watch somebody go through that, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of the stuff that we want to start kind of this big ruckus about over here just seem like such a small issue. Yeah. Like that, I mean, man, that was like a transformative moment for me. Like you watch. Of course, like, man. That's like yeah. the biggest moment in any man's life is the passing of his father. Yeah. Like you, I watched my dad go from like a, a high school, like a a an assistant superintendent for business for Huntington Community Schools, you know, they had a five million dollar budget that he took from they were in the red consistently to he brought them into the black and they were like finally doing well as a corporation. And I watched him go from that to, you know, he caught his colon cancer super late. And so there was a lot of like pain management, that mm-hmm. type of stuff. And kind of the sentiment now is like we'll just prescribe him like opioids stuff like that and i watched my dad turn into like an oxycontin addict yeah and it's like you know when you see somebody you love so much like going trying to like draw a prescription like their hands shaking all this and that and you see them in so much pain it just makes like you know destroying like portland over like you know like what? I understand there is like police brutality like I don't doubt that some people have had that experience but you just are like you know how much of that can you really affect mm-hmm. and I think that you can demonstrate you can do that type of stuff but like I just choose to focus more like on my family and like being there for each other and stuff because you realize like we're I think I read a study we're like culturally at the lowest point of empathy that we've been in like decades and when you watch like when my dad went through that um, like his first instinct like I mean he was pretty successful and so like with his life savings he bought this cabin in Michigan and like when he passed he ended up giving the deed to like my wife and I and it when you can watch somebody go through so much suffering and so much pain and so much hardship and like you know like I even I remember going up to Grand Rapids and like seeing him like they had to do like an emergency like colostomy bag procedure and so like a colostomy. yeah and you see like someone you care so much with like a hole in their stomach and like you know shit and blood and like they're like screaming for your hand and stuff oh, you just want to be like you want to look at some of the stuff that we're fired up about now and you just want to look at people and think like wake up man like yeah. it can be it can be so much worse and yep. the people that go through that and come out of the other side like 
still just angry and bitter and want to protest. Like, I genuinely think it's like a lack of, like, like a, not having the willingness to like lean in mm. and like understand that grief process and like understand like how to come out of such a traumatic experience with a positive outlook. Yeah. I don't know. That's like a weird like conglomerate. Like Those two things, I mean, those, those events can go one of two ways. Like it can, like for me this past year with my son, which is different because your dad's life was close, coming to a close. My son's yeah. life was just starting. Exactly. Those are two different things. You can go into these awful things with like, and come out the other side with being a better human or worse. Yeah. And I think that people just lose sight of all these real things for just the garbage they're being fed in their heads. Like, yeah, my wife, like about lost her shit this summer. Whenever I had people calling me saying I should be using my platform to call out police brutality. Meanwhile, my fucking son's in the ICU for the first six months of his life. You really think I give a shit about anything else but him right yeah. now? Fuck you. Exactly. And calling call me a bad person because I'm not using my platform to yeah. just talk about stuff that I have no business in. Yeah. No. <laughs> like, it's people. It's, no. Like, mm. you were so. And like I said, I mean, I never want to diminish those experience because I'm sure people have had that experience and I'm sure it was traumatic. But like at the same time, like at times I feel like there are people that just are so comfortable they have to make up shit to worry about. Yeah, embarrassment of riches. Exactly. And that was like, I had, um, I listened to a guy named Duncan Trussell. It's super weird show. Like I love Duncan Trussell on, on Rogan. So, like, he did a podcast with his mom two weeks before she passed from cancer, too. But it was, like, the end of it was the most profound thought that I had ever heard where it was, like, those people that never want to deal with that. Like, when you lose someone like that, imagine, like, the feeling you get in the Rocky Mountains when you stand next to a creation of God that is so impressive, so vast, and so massive that your sense of scale is brought right back to where it should be. Like, you are such a small cog in a very large universe. And imagine, like, overnight, like, you basically, when you have someone like my dad, like, your whole life, you just get used to that love and that scenery being there. And Mm -hmm. overnight, it's like somebody just excavated the Grand Canyon. Like, just filled it in, put a parking lot there. Like, all of a sudden, that scenery, that everything is gone. Wow. And... Like, she described it as when you look into that pain and everything, you realize, like, why you hurt so much and why you feel all these terrible feelings and why you're so angry and bitter is that you had such an abundance of love your entire life. And, like, for me, I was so fully and completely loved by my dad that losing him, like, shattered me. Like, 100%. Like... I had, like, 20th group still coming back, like, hey, man, you want to, like, still go through this process? Like, we think you'd be a great fit. We think you just got a bad break. You need to come back. But it was, like, I realized that, like, I had to take the time to process, like, what that, like, loss of love was like for me. And I just came out of the other side realizing, like, you know, I wanted to spend that time with my wife, who, by the way, was... 100% like my rock like anybody else would have left because I like punched holes in all of our doors like I like I literally knocked like our garage door like out of the frame 
like I punched the thing so hard one day and it was like but when I realized that I felt so much of that pain because I had been loved so completely my mindset almost went from like like I'm gonna indulge all these like I guess like the embarrassment of riches and I'm gonna make up all these problems to be concerned about you know instead of doing that I'm gonna focus on what I can control in my life and the people that are gonna feed me and are going to be like like feed that positive mindset of just love and caring and doing all that and if people want to give me that I'm gonna give it right back and I'm gonna do it to the best of my ability because I realize like what a giant like I can start to build that like like Rocky Mountain scenery's worth of love in somebody else's life wow. and like you do for your son like in you know when he grows up like he's gonna know that he had a father who spent who would have gone to no expense who would have done nothing like nothing was too much mm-hmm. to make sure that your son is taken care of right and he's gonna grow up knowing that and have that in the back of his head and I just think that to have that like profoundly changes a person yeah like some of this is all like thoughts that I've just kind of been mulling over during like isolation in Africa but yeah <laughs> you know. I mean it's real man I was so my son has these little fits so the reason he's still on ventilators because his airways yeah are where you and I have like straws for airways is more like noodles so they collapse if they don't have enough pressure on them yeah sometimes he like if he gets upset he'll like basically squeeze and it'll cause his airways to collapse and he turns like dark purple and he's just yeah. like not there and it scares the shit out of him as it would with anybody if you can't breathe yeah um, and so like I one morning at like five in the morning just randomly all of his shits his alarms are going off and he's having one of these episodes and I resuscitate him all that fun stuff which is like traumatic whenever no it has to be traumatic oh, man. yeah i can't even imagine yeah it's every day um but it's so and we we've become desensitized to it but whenever whenever we have people over at our house and he and he does it like no one talks for like 10 minutes because it's like the worst thing you can you see a baby just like die, literally dying in front yeah. of you and caitlin and i have seen it every day for the last year yeah um so we're like you know it's just him doing his thing but anyway I resuscitated him, got him back, and I was just holding his hand while he was falling back asleep. And I was just thinking, man, I know how to love on this child because my dad gave me so much love. Yeah. It's just like, it's just, uh, I feel so fortunate to have the dad that I have. And I can feel you the way you talk about it. Just like, it's your whole life. Like, you're, you're so lucky to have your, your father that you had. And yeah. Again, I said it earlier, but I'm so proud of like how you've handled it. You know, I haven't seen him the inside, but on the outside, you're like, stoic and i'm really impressed with it dude i i appreciate it and that was like uh and i'm sure like you even saw like with your son like that's the the shitty thing about like grieving in america is and i mean that's i think part of that sense of like that internal drive and everything that we have is you don't like there is no like taking like an extended break Mm -hmm. like you don't get to just check out while you deal with that stuff like there's expect like a week after one calendar month after my dad died like i inherited like three new jobs at work and it was like you know there's no real way to like yeah you can check out and you can do all that but i mean 
there's only a certain level of like empathy that a lot of people have for that situation. And it's like, I had no idea, like it's a con of being off social media that you had to deal with all that, but you're still like an entrepreneur, even with all of that happening. I got bills and, to pay. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, you realize that I think going through what you and I have, like it just gives you the ability to, like we said, like have that sense of empathy. Like I can appreciate like someone who's lived a hard life and someone who's had those struggles and maybe feels the need to indulge some of these, like what's going on Mm -hmm. in the popular culture and the news and this kind of outrage culture. Like I can understand the siren song they get sucked into and I can have a sense of empathy surrounding that. But like, it's hard to really like sit down and console somebody and like feel for them like through a digital screen. Yeah. Like, I think that what you and I have gone through really just emphasizes that like maybe not having such a big circle, but the people that are in your circle taking care of them a lot more and just yeah. understanding like when those struggles do come up, like, yeah. how to approach it. Yeah, I mean, we didn't share or I didn't want to share that with anybody because it was just, it was my battle. It was my wife's battle, my battle to go through. It wasn't social media's battle to go through for us, you know? So I don't think we shared anything about it until uh, like six or seven months after the fact. And it's just, I wanted people to see like this little miracle right here had Mm -hmm. a 5% chance of living. And now he's like going to be a normal little kid. He's going to have a full life. He's going to have a hell of a lot of love. Well, and you, like, you realize the value in, like, going through that dark time. And, like, I'm not ever going to advocate for, like, I think this idea of, like, you know, like, Irish goodbying through, like, a super hard and stressful time and, like, is not the way to go about it. I think that you have to find that that confidant like i'm sure your wife is Mm. and you have to find that sounding board to express those like moments of outrage and those moments of petulance and those moments of just outburst to in order to six to seven months down the line come to a more mature like measured like because you got to process that like Mm. if you're just throwing out like if you would have asked me like a month after my dad passed when I was just like swan dived into substance abuse like I would have had the unhealthiest look on it look out on it in the world and I I still remember some of the conversations I had with one of my best friends uh, Chad and it was like I said some really dark shit Mm -hmm. and I said some really awful shit and I am so grateful that I had somebody like he deployed a few times with second ranger battalion, which is another like special operations wing of the military. And he kind of had seen some of what I was talking about. And so he knew when to just like nod, like pour me another drink, like do that type of thing. But then also come back the next day and be like, Hey man, some of the stuff you said last night was, uh, kind of off the charts. Like Mm -hmm. you okay. And, he was one of those people that like, you know, encouraged me to go to like, you know, see like a counselor to do this, that, like you kind of, there's a process of self-actualization you have to go through where you have to realize what those experiences mean to you. Mm -hmm. 
and realize that not everybody's going to come to the same conclusions and that's okay because they probably have a completely different set of circumstances like yeah like my mom lost my grandpa died earlier in the year and my my mom did not react nearly the same way I did because her grand like her dad my grandpa was pretty like verbally abusive like she just didn't have the right relationship so when he passed it was just kind of like is what it is Mm -hmm. you know but you know she doubled down on our relationship and so I realized that it wasn't like bad or wrong the way she handled stuff it was just she had a completely different set of life experiences that led her to a different style of grief and she probably got way different lessons than I did yeah one of the things um this sounds so ridiculous, but one of the reasons I was able to get through those hard times, and I don't mean to like magnify my hard times, your hard times more than yeah. other people's hard times, but one of the things that helped me get through it was 75 hard. I've talked about this so many times, but yeah. it's this thing. It's it's like a mental toughness program. And it's basically, yeah. have you heard of it? Uh, it's Andy Frazella's thing. Yeah. 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 Andrew Yep. Um, and I did it. And like it going through the hard time plus having these disciplines that I had had built into my life completely like I came out of that program a different man yeah like and I'll never like once you become something you can never go back right yeah exactly different man out of that program and so I'm gonna do that every year of my life for the rest of my life exactly and that's something that I I can't stress it enough like having that like that internal regulation and that sense of discipline. And I think the temptation for a lot of people to like, you know, for lack of a better term, like to just sling shit at that mindset mm-hmm. and be like, oh, it's trash. That's some bro thing. You, It's like, yeah, because like you've never done it. And right, you're, yeah. You're probably like too, you lack the confidence to truly like dedicate yourself to that. Because yeah. I think you'd agree like it is – it's extremely hard and it's extremely intimidating to stand at the base of one of the hardest things you've ever done and be like, okay, I'm not going to give myself the excuse to get out of this. Yep. And like, no matter how hard it gets, you have to remind yourself, I wanted this Mm -hmm. and I committed to this committed. Yeah. Committed is the keyword that commitment versus wanting to do something are two totally different things. Dude. And that like, I mean that, that mindset has improved like every facet of my life. Like my marriage with my wife after one, I mean, my wife, my wife's a gangster. Like she, (laughs) like when dad was like in hospice and stuff, I got to the point where I had been up for so long that it was like, I was nodding off, but he wasn't in great shape. So it was kind of like, I didn't want to miss like, you know, Mm -hmm. him passing and my wife for like, 24 hours straight was like well i will sit next to this bed and she stood there she held his hand like she would talk to him just do all that and it's like when you can see somebody else willing to make that commitment in you and you understand because you've gone through like a process of building discipline when you've seen somebody else willing to demonstrate that who's got that level of commitment towards you and your family as well i mean like the the concept of like cheating on my wife is so hilariously foreign to me because it's yeah, like yeah. it's not about like I don't know you just realize like what the value of what you have in front of you 
at the moment. And man, that was, um, I a hundred percent agree with you. Like the 75 hard thing I know is a pretty intense process too. Like you, there's a lot of requirements for that. If I remember correctly. Yeah. I'll talk about it in one second, but I want to, this quote right here has stood out to me since maybe like five or six years ago. And it's like the, I don't know what the word is. The incredible benefit of having a dedicated wife like I Mm -hmm. do and like you do. Yeah. It's summed up in this quote, being, being deeply loved gives, (laughs) being deeply loved by someone gives you strength while loving someone deeply gives you courage. It's a Lao Tzu quote from how many thousands of years ago. But I mean, that's just, you think about that and being deeply loved by someone gives you strength. So my wife loving me as much as she does gives me strength to build off for the rest of my life. Yeah. Loving someone deeply gives you courage. It takes courage to, to put your heart out there and love somebody like that. I just, I love that quote. I wanted to share that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. But 75 hard is two workouts a day. So it's 75 days, okay. and you can't make any changes to the program. You can't make it your own. You can't do your own thing. Yeah. It's, you do these things, and you do them exactly like this for 75 days. If you miss any of them, you start over. Okay. So it's two extra two workouts, 45 minutes. One has to be outside no matter what. So okay. like last night was freezing balls. I was outside. Yeah. Uh, during the blizzard that we just had, I was outside walking in it. Yep. So two workouts a day. You have to drink a gallon of water every day. You have to read 10 pages of a nonfiction book every day. You have to follow a diet or, yeah, follow a diet. Yeah. No cheat meals, no alcohol. Okay. Um, and then you have to take a progress picture every day. So I'm up, my yeah. wife and I make fun of me all the time for taking selfies, but that's what you got to do. Yeah, it's um, part of the program. Yeah, it's part of the program. And so, and the cool thing is, like, when you're done, you see you see the physical transformation of your body, but the biggest thing, and he just talked about this on a show, like, today, the biggest thing that you'll see on anybody that's gone through this is their face. Like, you'll see somebody, whenever they're starting, is just, like, their regular face, but when they're done, they're, like, glowing, uh, confident, stern, yeah. like, feel good about who the fuck they are. Exactly. And that's the biggest thing about this. So, 75 straight days of two-a-days is fucking rough on the body. Yes. But whenever you're done with it, like you, it's one of those things like you talked about earlier. It's like once you go through something, you're like, you reset new level that you didn't know you had. Yeah. And now you go through the rest of your life knowing you have a level that you didn't think you had. Yeah. You can go a little bit deeper than most people. Yeah. And so that's what that program gives to people. And it's just 75 days of doing anything is, in, I guess, tough. Exactly. 75 days of doing this is just like a mental fuck, but it's awesome. Well, and man, like, I think one of the, I guess, things that you mentioned with that program that I've kind of stumbled upon recently as well is like the, like the no alcohol. Mm -hmm. And, um, it just, I like, I mean, I already kind of dove way into the dad thing, but it was like coming out of that like cycle of substance abuse and using that to numb and do all of that when you can find internally a way to like I described it to my wife because I kind of use like I've been getting into like headspace meditation that sort Mm -hmm. of thing and people look at it as like a a weird like I don't know how to describe it they look at it as like this weird like you know you're the vegan guy in the group Mm -hmm. like oh I I bet you do CrossFit too meditation guy guy. yeah (laughs) But when you realize so that I was thinking of this earlier, yeah, so keep yeah. Going. <laughs> when you realize that it's the purpose of that isn't necessarily organically to just be like, I'm a guy who meditates, but it's like 
if you get like if you understand like fighting or anything like that you create space between yourself and your emotions mm-hmm. and you learn that you don't need like booze or whatever else to like numb your reaction to an emotion you internally have the frame of mind to where you can position yourself against an extremely strenuous activity or an extremely sharp emotion you can push that far enough away just by like literally sitting still and breathing for 10 Mm -hmm. minutes you can come out of that having reframed that issue and realizing that like yes I may be extremely upset or I may be extremely aggravated or I may be insert emotion here but I also have the autonomy of mind that I can I can make decisions independent of that emotion. You don't have to be a slave to that emotional reaction. Yeah. That you just want to naturally give. You can take that you give yourself that little space between you and the emotion yeah. or you and the issue. You can dissect it and break it down for what it really is, not just what your little brain's telling you it is. Yep. And take it from there. And I think substances like I described it um because my wife's a psychology like major does stuff with in the psychology field and i describe substances like whether it be like cannabis whether it be alcohol it's a it's an emotional credit card Hmm. you you swipe feeling good now for like that sharper downfall later like you are just trading off that sadness that whatever else that you are going to try and suppress Mm mm-hmm like yeah you're, you're gonna feel good for a little bit but i guarantee you when you come off whatever that is you're gonna feel twice as bad later on yeah and not only are you gonna then have to deal with that emotion but you're gonna have to deal with your body's natural process of like chemically rebalancing your brain mm-hmm. which is not a fun process yeah definitely you know like a hangover like you know for those that ad- indulge into the laser lettuce like the like the like the sharp like that you know kind of petulant outburst that anger that whatever else that comes when you don't get that drug it's like i mean it it's a credit card Mm -hmm. it's you are then paying 30 percent interest on your emotions yeah and i think a lot of it is how you go into the the use of said substance too. Yeah, like, exactly. I love going and having a nice drink and celebrating. Yeah. But I know that if I'm drinking to cover up some sort of stress that I'm dealing with, that's not like a long-term solution. No. But like I found myself drinking beer all the, like every night almost. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, well this has to stop. So yep. and you, then you drop that. But it's amazing how fast these little, these little tiny habits can slowly turn into like crutches. Exactly. And it ha- happens to anybody that like gets involved in using substances for whatever reason. If you're using it consistently, it's eventually just going to become a crutch. Yep. And that man, like, um, that's why I'm really glad that like, um, like my wife or her family has a really heavy, like history of depression, all that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think that depression, there's a lot of temptation to for people to look at it and be like, well, like that's something you can really affect. You can do this, that, or the other. But my wife really showed me, like, and she's pretty open about depression and everything, too. That, you know, for someone who genuinely, clinically has been diagnosed with depression, there is a level of, like, not having that control over your emotions. Mm-hmm. And f- to be around her abusing substances and 
have her uh, basically just kind of there in my ear really gently being like you know I love you enough to tell you what you're doing isn't helping you and I'm going to stand here and I'm going to let you like you're going to try and destroy yourself and I'm going to stop you before you do it but I'm going to let you discover on your own how bad this really is for you yeah that's wonderful and man like I like I talk to everybody I meet and like just you know explain how great my wife is but it's like you you just really can't overstate the value of having somebody in your life who's going to hold you to accountable but also let you come to your own conclusions when it comes to that type of stuff yeah it sounds like you've done just a lot of work on yourself recently dude it i mean one yeah like spending a month in africa i'll definitely do that (laughs) like hey man you're locked in a room and you're not allowed to go outside during the day yeah i forget let's talk about that Dude, I so Go, get started. I do this every episode. Yeah, I gotta take a piss. So just oh. get started and see where it goes. Let's yeah, see how you do by yourself. No, so uh, probably the biggest thing about Africa that I had to really deal with was the fact that I had no social media. I had no this, that, or the other. But um, basically, I got locked in a room for ten days. So when I went out to Africa, like I said tested negative for uh, COVID, but somehow when I was there, I tested positive for COVID. And so um, when you are out there for like, you know, the blanket Air Force policy is that you have to isolate for 10 days no matter what. So if I would have found out like, hey, you know, this might have been a false positive, we're going to take another test, Uh, we need to uh, test you again and I would have tested positive again, it would have just been another 10-day, like, quarantine. And so, eventually, I kind of wound up in the unfortunate circumstance of knowing that although my COVID was likely a false positive, I was then forced to spend 10 days in a room by myself. And the thing about spending 10 days in a room by yourself with no social media and, you know, having been abusing maybe like some substances a little too hard leading into that like you have some real honest conversations with yourself and instead of looking at that as like a I had a really positive person with me so that made it a little bit easier but um, at the same time like I just looked at it as a chance to like dig in and just see you know like I talked about leaning into grief and that's where I kind of decided I was just going to lean in and see what I could learn from everything. And so, you know, anytime I could feel those negative emotions coming on, whatever else, I just tried to figure out, you know, okay, is this really as bad as I think it is? Or is this my mind trying to create a sense of panic in me so that I will go back to behaving the way I did before? And is this emotion really going to feed me and help improve the situation? Or am I just indulging in Mm self-pity? And um, when you can go into that, when you can go into that kind of unfortunate situation, but you can maintain a sense of positivity, I think you can really come out with kind of the correct result, if that makes sense. Like a lot of people just don't want to be self-aware, man. Like that is... They refuse to look at, at yes. their situation. They ref- just absolutely refuse to look at it. Yeah. 
And it's like, it's uncomfortable. Like when you have to look at yourself and say, I'm the problem, mm-hmm. that sucks. <laughs> and does. nobody wants, <laughs> like nobody wants to do that. And nobody has a good time doing that. But at the end of the day, like if you're really gonna like, that was my thing before. Like I have kids, um, like with Dana, I, I don't want to go into that not having unpacked my own stuff. Yeah. And because inevitably, you know, the sins of the father, are the sins of the son, and you kind of have to just realize how to deal with that. Yeah, it's, my wife and I were just talking about that specifically the other day. It's like there are a lot of things in both of our family lineage that, like, we have to be, we have to decide, like, this stops with us. Yeah. And we don't pass this on to our children. Yeah. And that, like, unhealth, like unhealthy spending was one of the stuff that, like, mm-hmm. I had to, like, get over, like... I learned that like I would buy stuff just because I was anxious or like I would like I didn't realize how much my anxiety drove bad habits and like meditating and doing stuff like that was like my wallet has been so grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been meditating every day? Yeah. You, it, uh, using headspace? Yeah. In that like <laughs> ironically it was when I was under the influence that I accidentally purchased a year of headspace instead of a Ooh. month of it. Yeah. But uh, it wound up being kind of one of those like serendipitous moments of just uh, unintentional good decision making because that was like, I didn't have social media, I didn't have a whole lot to do, and I can only watch so much Netflix. So <laughs> I would just like put on like a 10 minute guided meditation, I'd put on another one, then another one, and I don't do well with like the unstructured, just like open, like yeah. you're going to stare at a wall for four hours yeah but if i do like enough of those little guys in a row like i can get that same sensation or like especially if i can get on like a treadmill in like an empty room and just like stare at a wall and keep my heart rate in like that zone two level Mm -hmm. and just go like that's kind of almost the same sensation for me yeah it's that flow so i i've been walking every night i'm listening to um audiobooks biographies like right now i'm on george washington i just finished alexander hamilton but like i can get off in this this flow state where it's just like my brain is just clicking yeah i'm just feeling great but like it takes work and it takes a lot of work to understand when when you are in one of those states also like you have to be aware of it to know that it's actually happening yep like the more i don't meditate as much as i used to but I used to be able to get like really deep in the meditation and like yeah. have complete control over everything, like mentally. And then, but those are skills that like don't leave. They're kind of like riding a bike after a while. You can jump back into them. Exactly. But like the better you get at it, the more benefits you get from it, in my yeah. experience. It's just like a, it's a healthier mindset. And I actually, I almost texted you whenever I uh, downloaded Matthew McConaughey's audiobook. Oh, how is it? Green Lights. So I, I think you are somehow like distantly related to Matthew McConaughey because if you if you (laughs) must be a Mick thing, it's it it has (laughs) to be because if you read, uh, he describes himself as a grifter and a hustler at one point, and I'm like, well, if that's not Jerry McGrew, (laughs) but uh, it grifter and a hustler. But that was one of the things where it's also like. That audiobook was a big, like, I was glad I listened to that before I went to 
Africa because there's actually a couple of points where he kind of describes the situation he was in, and that really had a huge effect on how I took being isolated. Mm -hmm. Like, there's those people that are like, I was in isolation, and it's like you see them on their Instagram or Snap story, and they're like running around at like the mall or something. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) but then there's like, I was like locked in a room and not allowed to leave. (laughs) Damn, that's crazy. Type isolation. I would go insane. But it was, he kind of describes it as, you know, I, I started like reading and I made the isolation, my chance to become like my own like version of a monk. So it was like, I'm going to figure out what needs to be touched up and what needs to be like addressed and where I need to find myself at the end of this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just internally clock myself to make sure that I get there. So I would call that solitude. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. Different word. I would call that solitude and those solitude sounds better. Yeah. Better. Oh yeah. <laughs> and solitude have those times whenever I get a lot of solitude are the times whenever I grow the most. Yeah. So like they happen to be, they typically, well, so I've had two years of my life that were both the hardest and the best years of my life. It was yeah. this year and then the year right after college. Yeah. Both years I was alone all the time. Cause like last year we couldn't be at the hospital together. So we had to take turns. So Caitlin would be at the hospital for eight hours. Yeah. Then I would go to the hospital for eight hours and we would never see each other. So I was just by myself all the time. Yeah. And like during COVID, you couldn't go out and drink beers with your friends. You couldn't do anything. No. So it's just me working out, audiobooks, podcasts, and myself. And that solitude like allows you to really assess things as like where they're at right now. And if, if you can be honest with yourself, you can kind of figure out what things you need to work on. You can kind of sharpen the saw in different areas. Yeah. But I, once you get a taste of solitude, it's just like, man. I don't want to go back to not having solitude. Like, it's been a weird adjustment. Or it was at first being a weird adjustment. We went from not seeing each other for six months to, like, we can't be apart for six months because it takes two people to take care of Roman. Yeah. And so that was an adjustment. But that solitude, man, is just such a gift. If you don't use it, yeah. you're missing out on the growth. Dude, that's one of the reasons why I, like, I'm so big into biking. And I think my mom has always been so big into biking is you give yourself the ability to like, especially where we're at in Fortville, you know, it's kind of like I go one way and I have like some great Italian food, which Cortona's in Fortville, we definitely need to go to at some point. Okay, It's like the dude literally came from Cortona, Italy, opened a shop wow. and it's a hundred percent authentic. Where did we go? I went somewhere with Tim Blinn and Marge in Fortville. Fox Garden probably. Nope. I've been there before. Taxman. But- yeah, it was Taxman. Yeah. We went there, and we, we got kind of lit. That was a good time. Yeah. But I had to make my way over there. Tim lives pretty close. He lives probably like four or five miles from Fortville. Yeah, nice. I'll have to link up with him at some point. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, but it's like you're able to take, you know, you go left, you're in town, you go right, and it's just absolute just country. Do and it reminds me a lot. It I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized later I was like, this is a lot like Wells County out here. Oh, I missed the shit out, especially last year when all like the entire world went psychotic. Yeah, I'm just like, man, you wouldn't you wouldn't see this shit. You wouldn't have people, hey, wear a mask, asshole. You wouldn't have that shit in the country. It'd be like, how you doing? Good to see you today. Dude. I missed the shit out of that and the space, man. I'm definitely going back, dude. That was uh, like so. Mom actually ended up auctioning off the house that we grew up at. And, Markle. Yeah, and so I was. I was pretty upset with that and like we've talked about it since then and we've kind of 
both said our pieces about it and mm-hmm. we're we're good now but it was like the the peace you get like if you grew up and you had like a happy healthy home and the peace you get from going back and just laying your head in that bed like that's still the best sleep you're ever going to get mm-hmm. and like that was fuck that was one of the hardest things ever was going there like and knowing like this is the last time i'm ever going to be in this house dude same my parents sold their house oh really yeah i did not realize that yeah they moved down to uh covington down by new orleans yeah yeah and man cleaning up that house and like emptying out was like really hard yeah because you like you know what was it like the that country like the house that raised me that sort of thing that was like like that came on when I was driving by Markle at one point oh, and it man. was like, turn on the waterworks, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but you, and it's at the end of the day though, it kind of goes back to that same thing. I know I've said it like nine times, but I wish just more people would take that approach. Like there's that temptation to be like bitter and like, God damn it. Like, I can't believe that happened, but it's like, or you can look at it as like how abundantly blessed for we to grow up and have that when so many people like have that like section eight experience like you know poverty this that and the other we for that small part of our lives we're able to grow up and do it in such a peaceful stable environment that it's like i feel like that's probably part of the reason we're able to do like the 75 hard like the sniper school the selection the whatever else because you have such a foundation that was poured so concretely and Mm -hmm. so positively that it's just it's a leg up yeah i mean totally is it's a hundred percent a leg that security is like i mean that's that's the first step on maslow's hierarchy isn't it yeah security like Mm -hmm. i was born with security yeah that's really nice and like taken for granted by very very many people including myself sometimes like do you so i don't know if it's the same way for you but like um that's one of the reasons I realized why I liked being in the infantry and the military is because when we like sleep outside and we like are like, we call it a bivouac when we're bivouacking in the woods, you hear like cicadas and all that stuff in the summer. And it's like, I, you know, put me to sleep in five minutes. Mm-hmm. That is like the most if I could bottle a sound and just have yeah. that for the rest of my life, like it's not the same coming yeah. th- through like, um, like speakers or headphones or whatever it's else. Not. But if you can be in it and immersed in it, it is the most relaxing sensation in the world. Same thing with like looking at the stars. Like we would yeah. go out, like we're in the city now. And so you can't even really see the stars, but you got in the country, like where my parents' house was. And it is every fucking star in the sky. is yep. just bright. Dude, that's one of the things I'll tell you about. Um, Niger is if you were able to drive like an hour or two out of the city mm-hmm. and it's such like a low the only other place I've seen that has like the same kind of vibe to it is in the Smoky Mountains like towards like the Cherokee Reservation out that way when you look up it is like straight up like you can visibly see the Milky Way <laughs> and I don't, I don't know. It's mind-blowing. I wish more people could actually go out there and get, like, that sense of scale yeah. that we had. I like that you up. say that, sense of scale. That's that's very necessary. Yeah. Instead of scrolling and everything being about you, it's like you go out and see the sense of scale. Yeah. I really like that. It's a good take-home for me. Um, one of the things I think that people from the country always will have, aside from 
most people that I know that are from the city is like that sense of like every person is your community. Yeah. And just that sense of community in general. Like we don't have where we grew up. I mean, you, you had like your little feuds and you had, I think there's definitely like an equally like toxic sense of like never leaving that environment. For sure. Oh, God. Yeah. I think we both... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank God we got out, but I can't wait to go back. And I'm never going to go back there specifically, but I can't wait to get back to, like, having space. Yeah. It's like a it's like a walkabout, man. And, um, like, that was, I think, what Dad... It, so it's kind of weird. The cabin that Dad got in Michigan that, like... Um, like he didn't really have time to make like a will or anything mm-hmm. after he passed and my mom I like she was in a bad state brother was in a bad state all that so i mean my like i'd gone through enough hardship leading up to that that i was like i will like i'm going to take the deed to the cabin we're not selling this it's an investment like i kind of had some confrontation with my mom like i'm not going to let you get rid of this mm-hmm. and her family kind of like circled around me and was like you're not going to take this from him and now she's in a way better place. She's like, right. I'm really glad you did that. But it's weird because growing up, I always like had this like recurring dream that like when I was old, I was going to be somewhere that was like next to a river. And then I realized like when I looked down from like the deck and like whenever I look down at like the Osaba where we're at in Grayling, it's like the exact same like it is literally like a carbon footprint of what I would like dream about. Isn't that crazy when that happens? It's, I mean, it's like deja vu. Do you have photos of it? Yeah. yeah so, like, it was the weirdest sense of like deja vu in the absolute world. And I think here is actually, so here's actually a, a video that my wife did that shows like the cabin in general. So you look and you see it's kind of like built into the side of a hill. Dude, that's beautiful. Like you have all these pine trees and everything. And I'm making a video tour. So that's why. To show my parents. So like you look down there and you can see there's like a retention wall, but it's all just straight up pine. And it's got that like stereotypical like squeaky screen door, like, you know, every cabin in the world has. It's got like a little like side yard area. Where is it? Here we go. So here you can see the side yard, but there you can kind of see like the river and everything right down there. Dude, that is freaking beautiful. Where is this at? Fire pit, uh, Grayling, Michigan. Dude, I'm not even kidding. You and Where's Caitlin, that? if you need. I definitely want a house like that. Yeah. Uh, so if you look in the mitten, we'll do this traditional Michigan style. It's like right up by kind of like your, <laughs> like your index fingers, like top kind of knuckle it's right up yeah. there kind of nestled up next to the up but what really gets me like you go inside here and this is the inside and this wow. fireplace and and then you have there's like surround sound and everything put in there and i mean it's kind of small otherwise but no, i, I ain't complaining at all <laughs> but man it's like my dad had the foresight to be like, you know, when I leave and when I'm gone, like he was kind of that sense of community in our house. And he kind of brought that like small town sentiment of like having like a place to come together and like to know that somebody like sacrificed their entire life savings to be like, I'm going to give this to you. 
like it was it was all for you and to like have that moment like i said was telling you beforehand where i like sat down and i like had that conversation with my father where i was like you know going to selection sniper school all that like i did it to make you proud man and to have my dad then in return say like you know i gave my entire life savings so that you would have this it to have like that level of generosity like reciprocated and to have that example of generosity it's like i mean i like i get kind of teared up like i am a little bit now like to just sit and think about that like somebody gave everything to you Mm -hmm. and they did it because they love you that much Mm -hmm. and it's like all of those it's not even like a money thing because to get money money is really just a reward for time and to know that that time was spent those sacrifices were made and all of that was just for that one singular purpose like that is life altering and i don't think i've really like fully unpacked like what that means to me mm-hmm. but to just have that example like it kind of goes back to that same theme that we've had the whole time. Like you, you come out of that and I, I would be hard pressed to find somebody who's truly sat down, led an examined life, thought of that and can be a bitter person and an angry, angry person and all that. An like, examined life. That is so crucial. Like, man, it, it's like, I mean, I can't even put into words. Like I walk into there and it's like, <laughs> like i like I feel my father. Yeah, that's and awesome, man. It really is like I mean I think you can even what see a it on, gift. Like on the mantle, like I still have like his hat he was wearing when like he had to go to the hospital and stuff. And it's like uh, I had a picture that I'm gonna put up there. That's um, it's basically like you remember Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. Oh yeah. And it's like him and I drawn in like the style of The Giving Tree. And then, like, the tree that's, like, down by the dock. And it's, like, um, and it says, like, you know, and the tree was happy. Because you realize, like, at the end of your life, like, you're going to leave. And the only thing you're going to be able to pass on is, like, your values. And to know that, like, you know, he was content going when he did because he was able to have that last year of his life. Like, that's when we went fly fishing. That's when we went, like, on bike rides together. Like, that's when we got to like you know there was that really dark shit at the end where like you know he cried like you know cancer is this really dark like lonely illness that's Mm -hmm. this that and the other but like there are also those moments where like you know i was able to like you know like burn one with my dad and like talk about like you remember that time (laughs) i drove home and like i had beer cans in the back of my truck like (laughs) and he's like oh man you like i knew you were lying to me like this (laughs) and you're able to fully be just like open your heart to you know that person that's made such a foundational impact man it's like i don't think a lot of people get that and i think a lot of it was like based in that that sense of community like we grew up with and people that live in like a like a city environment's really good and you can form like there are those merits i can't speak on as many of them cuz i didn't grow right. up in it but it's like to live in that kind of like country atmosphere i just think you develop that value set and to see like that value set kind of come full circle and understand why Mm -hmm. that that was like that 
was, is, has been, and will continue to be, I mean, foundational. Yeah. And I can't wait to pass that stuff on to, like, the next generation. Yeah. Do you, how often do you make it up there? Dude, all the time. Oh, so like that's the good thing about the Army is when we're busy, we're busy. Mm-hmm. Like, real busy. Like, I won't leave work for, like, a month straight. Like, we're walk, working 12, 16, 18-hour days. Ooh. But then when you're not busy, you're like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And so I can take, like, week-long blocks of leave and, like, we just have, like, good times. Like, I had friends of mine who were able to get up there with me and, like, uh, I don't think there's anything else in there for the cabin. But, like, I was able to get up there with friends of mine. Um, Like, that was one of the last pictures my dad took up there. But it was, like when I'm able to get up there with friends and when I'm able to use that and turn it from like, at first it was like, this is where like my dad had to get airlifted from. But then now it's like, I have friends of mine that were able to get up there with me and family and everything. And now it's like, you're at family gatherings and they're like, you remember that time at the cabin? Or do you remember that one thing at the cat? Or do you remember this thing at the cabin? And you understand that like, that was the purpose. Right. That's just that's just such a great gift. I'm, I and seriously, I gotta man, see it. I gotta if, go. If you and you and your wife ever, I know with Roman, obviously you got a lot of stuff to consider. Kind of get his ass out of the house is what we need to do. But I've if been you guys talking about doing something like this, I took a day trip. Sorry to cut you off. I took a dude, day trip for, for business a couple years ago. Yeah, I drove up to Grand Rapids and I just fell in love with how fucking beautiful everything is up in Michigan. Yeah. So I'm like, man, I really want to spend like a week or two up there sometime. Dude, this is like no expense for you. Like you go up there, it's like <laughs> I will literally hand you a set of keys and you go up there. Like everything works, everything's ready, everything's supplied. Like you just turn the key and you relax i'm gonna take you up on that man seriously that's do it. beautiful i need to uh the one thing we didn't do was i need to get internet in there because that was or uh, don't or don't honestly <laughs> it's been so that has been one of the unintentional like really like fun things about it is nobody's on their phones because you don't get reception so nice. it's got like a dvd player like a ton of games uh but i mean a lot of firewood my general rule is there's like five acres around the property. If you're up there, just cut some wood and stack it up. Just replace what you take. And I mean, that sounds awesome. Splitting wood all day. God damn. People come like I had a friend of mine, uh, the Chad guy keep kind of talking about, like I had told him about the cabin. I was like, I'd honestly considered moving up there, this, that, and the other. And, He's like, I don't know why you would do that. Grayling's in the middle of nowhere, this, that, and the other. And he got there and literally stepped on the deck and goes, okay, I get it. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know how to say this other than, like, I feel home here. Yeah. And you come back to Indiana and it's like, you know, this place is home and this is where my wife and I have built a home. But when you get up there, it's like you you have an excuse for a week to – just downshift mm-hmm. and like That's important man dude seriously like when work calls are like hey we need you to action this or do this I'm like sorry bro got no internet see you in a week yep that's <laughs> how uh so we have internet whenever we go to hawaii but like hawaii is six hours behind yeah the world for me whenever we go out there so usually whenever we go on vacation it takes me like 
five or six days to even feel like I'm on vacation just because I'm always doing something. But whenever yep. I go on vacation, I'm doing nothing. Yeah. It takes me like five or six days usually. But whenever we go out to Hawaii, it's just like, it's like a different world. I have no connections anywhere else but right yep. here. Exactly. Leave my phone in the room other than take pictures and just go hiking on like tropical mountains and yeah. waterfalls. It's just so good. It's a... And I, th- I wish more, like, I mean, I understand that's like a super lucky, I mean, the circumstances in which the cabin came into our family were really terrible. But in light of that situation and having that fortune and being so blessed as to have that resource at my disposal, mm-hmm. to go up there, that's why I'm so, like, willing to just like give people that time up the cabin because I realize how valuable it is to just unplug from like because we get into such a routine and you get ratcheted into feeling like this is just you let your reality almost like cement itself in and you feel like well this is just this is never going to change this is never everything just feels real cyclical I don't I don't feel like I'm ever going to get out of this but when you get up there and you have that ability to just change gears for a week I feel like it gives you that like it's like meditating almost like Mm -hmm. meditation for your life like you create that space between you and the daily hustle and grind and all that how long of a trip is it it is six hours that's not bad no it's a and like we were able to spend like three weeks up there in December Um, thankfully so, I mean, when you can get up there and you can actually, like, schedule that big block of time and you don't have to do, like, a three-day turn and burn or something, that's when I think it's really that beneficial experience. Because six hours, like, and it's all almost highway. Like, literally, yeah. to get there from Fortville is, like, I turn on to 69, 69 to 128 north of Lansing, and then it's a right after I'm on 128. Yeah, we used to take... 69 up to Deja Vu, the strip club up in Lansing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that's the only bad part about it being so far up there. Is I, I said that was back when I was 18. I'm no longer. Yeah, up just that. just <laughs> for <that> life <laughs> for for future reference in case anyone listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I I don't get to see a whole lot of like other parts of Michigan anymore just because I get so like laser focused on there but at the same time I mean free is free and like the cabin is completely paid off so it's like you get into so I know you do fishing do you get into like archery or anything else like that no uh the so I do like long range shooting like that type of stuff just to keep my skill set pretty sharp but um between fishing I look at it as like maybe some axe throwing up a Michigan. Yeah. That might be good. I look at it as fishing is my relaxing hobby, shooting is my mentally sharpening like activity, mm-hmm. and then biking is like my fitness activity. Okay. And so that for me is like my trifecta of expensive hobbies. <laughs> okay. I need yeah. My most expensive hobby is my goddamn car. Oh. I love yeah. working on that thing. I've um, seen like you're not doing like you know like oil clark changes. griswold yeah. change in oil like yeah. you're getting into like the engine block yes yes i love it it's uh solving a hard problem like it's critical thinking engineering and solving hard problems and just hoping it fucking works yeah 
No, I like I uh, I ended up getting dad's truck and F one fifties, while beautiful machines, um, can be a bit temperamental. <laughs> and so I definitely have kinda like accidentally had to become good. Like mm-hmm. I tried to take it to a place in Taylorsville that I won't name that specializes in truck modifications and the guy forgot to tighten the lug nuts down oh, on my right front wheel. And so I've had like a braking problem ever since that because it like damn near like ripped the rotor off of the front axle. So if there's a, if you're looking to get truck maintenance done, I wouldn't go to a place in Taylorsville, but Jeez. yeah, that was a, so after that, it's been like kind of a, uh, like an unintended venture into all of that. <laughs> you talked about like, dumb spending earlier i got my first so after college i tried to start a business and failed miserably found myself in terrible debt yeah i think <laughs> terrible i remember that and Is then, that rive yep yeah i remember yep. Rive. good times uh it was a great idea didn't move much further than <laughs> that. <laughs> but hey man that was a long time ago and yeah. then uh, i finally got a job i was selling windows and gutters and i was making like 80 grand a year, which was a lot, but I was spending it just as fast. So I'm yeah. making all this money, making all these sales. And as a salesman, it's like, you don't worry about how much you're spending. You worry about how much more you can make. It's yeah. just like the mindset that I've always had. And so I just went out, I had a BMW Raptor, Raptor high school that I bought yeah. with my like graduation money and savings and shit. And then, um, that died on me. I had a, like a Pontiac G6, but I always promised myself I was going to get a BMW yeah. again. And so I went out and I was finally making all this big money, big dick exactly. swinging, and uh, went out and bought this uh, BMW 5 Series. I loved it. And then, like, shit just started going wrong with it, as BMWs do. They're, like, so finely tuned. They're, like, perfectly tuned machines that if one little thing, like, starts to get loose, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. So I had this big issue go wrong. And all of a sudden, I'm, like, looking, wait, you want an, how many dollars an hour to work on this? <laughs> And you're, you want $3,000 to do this little thing? What? And so it just became, like, out of necessity that I had to just, like, okay, well, let's fucking figure this out. And then yeah. just slowly, over time, turned into a hobby. And, like, I can do anything on my car that doesn't require me to lift the engine. If I yeah. had an engine lift, I would fucking do it. But I can do anything on my car now that requires that. Just out of the curiosity of learning more about it and then yeah. just the great feeling whenever you're like, yes, I fucking did yeah, it. I'm exactly. the greatest mechanic. I didn't even know how to change my oil a few years ago. Yep. And now I'm, like, changing out AC compressors and yeah. doing, like, really hard shit. That took forever. <laughs> I can only imagine, man. But, well, yeah, I had to get up in there. Well, and I think that's that kind of goes back to, like, one of those things we keep kind of circling back to. Like, with the way we grew up, we had so much of that. Like, when you have that stability and when you have that ability to know that, like, like, I don't have to go out and worry about picking up, like, another shift so I can pay rent. Right. You have that time and you have that ability to say, like, okay, I'm going to focus now on self-improvement. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like... But I want to add that you you have to figure out that time for self-improvement so you can get to that place. That is true. That like, is that's true. That's what I, I had to do. Like, most people are way smarter than me and, like, get at least a good foundation before they go out and work for themselves. Not my dumb ass. I just had to do it. Yeah. And so I was broke as fuck learning how to learning how to put the uh, the wings on the airplane as it falls off the cliff. Yeah. And I, you still have to make time for that even before you 
have time for that, if that makes sense. And it's almost like, I mean, it's it's kind of like building, I mean, it is building that routine and like almost having, I don't know how to describe it other than like, that was one of the things that like basic training and all that kind of ingrained in me was even in a packed schedule, I can find that time for me. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what amount of rigor you have, no matter what amount of like stuff on your plate, you have to learn how to create space from that situation, pull yourself into your own little huddle and say mm-hmm. like, okay, this is what I need to work. Like how many books a year do like fortune 500 company CEOs read? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think anybody can argue that they're more busy than a lot of those guys. Right, yeah. If you say you don't have time, yes. you're not making time. I'm my number one priority. Yes. I, I come before my wife. I come before my son because if I don't take care of me the right way, then I can't lead my family the right way. And I think that a like that's one of the things I really like love about Dana, too, is that she is she's able to – understand the importance of that yes same with mine yeah is and that's like i think she just is able to take that step back and be like even like right now like um like way later on like it's not a deal right now but i was like yeah we'll like there's like a wine garage in fortville like we'll go there we'll hang out we'll do that but i also think that she knew like this was important to me to like Mm -hmm. connect with you again and also to like kind of just like get all these thoughts and everything out into the world because like how many people have the chance to follow up like solitude with like do just talk about it yeah explain explain yeah. it to a group of people you have never and likely will never meet yep. but just <laughs> get your idea like actually into the world yep and i think that having like a spouse significant other like like people with like really shitty relationships that don't like figure out like when it's time to excuse themselves from those circumstances or they just make themselves feel like they're the victim in this situation like you just want to be like what are you doing if you're in a shitty relationship that's your fault either fix it or get the fuck on exactly and i do think a lot of people confuse that with like they skip the fix it and Mm -hmm. go to like get the fuck on yeah of course yeah for me you have a duty yeah like when when my wife and I got married, and that's what I think, like, the biggest lesson that marriage has taught me was, like, when you get married and you promise in front of, like, you know, God and everything else that you're you're going to do this, like, that's when it goes from, like, you've done that tester program with somebody and you've realized that it's like, okay, this is that person worth the, like, figure it out and fix it. Yep. And so, like... Yeah, sometimes you're going to be, like, fixing the wings of the airplane as it's, like, going down the cliff. But you've done that with somebody that you know shares enough of those values and has enough of that mindset that's going to come out of it. Like, there is stuff that we, like, very passionately disagree on. Oh, yeah. And we somehow still find a way to meet in the middle and understand, like, the value of what a like the other person has gone through. Like, I think that I've helped her to stick up for herself a lot more. Mm -hmm. And because like the army, like you can't like my personality is at all times, like to be like a nice dude. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like I always want to help. So like I will give somebody the shirt off my back and right. have done so on several, right. several occasions. But I had to learn how to, like you said, like be that a little bit of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And it's not even selfishness so much as understanding your self-worth. Yeah. And understanding when somebody is taking advantage of that. Yeah. And she was just that loving, giving person. Like she's had some really messed up stuff happen to her by people that were in her circle and even as recently as yesterday like she was trying to make an excuse for somebody that I don't jive with that she went to college with that was going to be at a wedding I was like no you don't have to have this mindset of it was in the past you don't have to have this mindset of whatever else like you can still look at that dude and think fuck that guy Yeah, you know you can 100% say I am worth enough Mm -hmm. to still think this person's a douchebag Yeah, and I think and at some point, it's just like, like I said, if I'm going to be, if my family's going to be at its best, then I have to be at my best. So it's, I don't even think it of, of it as selfish anymore so much as like my responsibility to be at my best. Yeah. And if you're, you're talking about like doing nice things for people, my responsibility is to do the right thing. The right thing is always the right thing. But if it becomes the wrong thing because someone's taking advantage of it, then it's no yeah. longer the right thing. Exactly. And that like, I think that like when somebody like when somebody preys on kindness that is like one of the That's grossest personality yeah. traits to me like yeah. it just I see people in that situation and like Dana will give me some grief sometimes cuz I get can get really like fired up about you know some people in some situations but it's almost been like a learned behavior where it's like no like you have to look at people who use that like exploitation of kindness and it's like to me like that is the character trait i will hammer someone on the hardest like i will 100 percent go from nice guy to like absolutely like will not work with this person because it's like if i can't trust you to reciprocate like good intentions then like why why are you that way yeah yeah like what what has happened to you and how are you going to act when I really need you? Right. When shit hits the fan, like you've already told me everything I need to know about you. I know how you're going to react in a bad situation. So yeah, yeah I, I cut off a lot of people like that. Not that I have like this big problem with a lot of people. Yeah. They try and take advantage of me because that really doesn't happen. But whenever I see something in somebody that I know is not like a good character trait, I don't, I don't yeah. associate with them. And I think that's one of the, like, maturity is growing up and learning to, like, I used to almost take it, like, personally when I interacted mm-hmm. with those people. And I had a really, like, like a really big mentor of mine in the military because that's one of the things, like, people don't realize is, like, the Army isn't going to be an inherently kind organization. Right. It is an organization where it's very hard to get fired and the machine's going to run no matter what cogs are in it. Right. And so you have to, like, seek out those mentors and, like, latch on to them and understand their leadership philosophy and develop your own and figure out what type of dude you're going to be. And one of them, like, I used to get fired up about those, we call them shitbags. Like, <laughs> dude, just absolute bag of turds. And it, like, really internally bothered me. And he's like, man, you have to look at yourself and think, one, thank God I'm not like that. Two, I don't understand or know what has led that person to be like that, but how much of my energy am I really going to waste 
on getting worked up about it. Yeah. And the sooner you can get from this is kind of messed up to, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to learn how to work with this person in my sphere and move on, the better. Yeah. I think growing up where we grew up, there's a lot of really, really good people. And yeah. So one problem I had really early on in my adult adulthood was I just trusted everybody's best intentions because I thought everybody yes. was good. Because where we're from, pretty much everybody's just a good person. Seriously. But then you start messing around in some areas where people just will take advantage of snakes. somebody doing the right thing. Yeah, snakes in the grass. And it took me a long time to learn how to spot snakes and cut the head off, basically. Yeah, and to, like, I mean, I had the same same situation, man. And it's like you think about that, and I really do think it it – a lot of it was based in that sports community we grew up with. Like, you got to think, like, you had, like, the Kren family, like, the Gerbers, like, who, the, you know, Jason Adams, like, all those guys that we grew up with such positive mentors that it was, like, you really had to be kind of a messed up dude to not come out. I mean, yeah, some guys had stuff at home we probably didn't know about, we didn't hear about. They had a tougher had it tougher than we did but like it's hard to come out of that situation and not kind of have the mindset like i can for some reason always spot like a like a wells county dude like you've got like your robux your detmers like i mean look at our friends group and they have all been pretty successful like mm-hmm. i mean detmer's like a doctor now mm-hmm. i think dr blend too right yep, dr blend my Doc- sister's a doctor yeah and it's like you know not everybody grew up with that and to it's almost like hard to not have that like inclination towards good intentions Mm -hmm. when you are surrounded by that type of mentality by so many people yeah i think to circle back i think the bigger problem that we're facing right now is not like how terrible the police are i think it's homes and people being shitty parents dude it (laughs) Like, I, whenever I taught middle school, that was one of the most... Oh, I bet that was a challenge. It was, it was a chat. it was, I describe middle schoolers as they're young enough to still get excited about stuff, and they're old enough to have an intelligent conversation with. And middle schoolers are as cool as you make them out to be. Like, if you're, if you as a teacher treat them like, infants and treat them like elementary kids and just like baby them and spoon feed them everything they're gonna act like babies but if you are willing to like interact with them a little bit more like adults and you're able to be a little bit um like have those higher standards like the standard we held our wrestlers to was unbelievable and they rose to it and they met it like regularly that's what humans do yeah So we need higher standards, not lower ones. But it was like, you see these kids that you look at in class, and you're just like, you are an absolute nightmare. And then, (laughs) like, their parents come in, and you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, I can see exactly why your child is the way he is. Yeah. And the weird thing is, like, those kids have, like, resistance to that. Mm -hmm. Like, if you can be in front of that class, like, I had... So when I was at John Young, my uh, my wrestlers, a lot of the, like anybody that was on the wrestling team, some of them, I had them for a 50-minute class in the morning, a 50-minute study hall on like the scene, like midday, a 50-minute class in the afternoon, 
and two hours for wrestling practice in the evening. Damn. Like, I used to joke to my wife that, like, my middle schoolers are my best friends. Yeah, it's like four hours a day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that was, like, 180 days a year. Ooh. Not even to include, like, wrestling meets and stuff, where I was, like, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Like, and what was really cool is after, like, I moved on, I was able to go back and, like, look at their, like, social medias for a while before I ended up, like, kind of excusing myself from that stuff. And you see, like, the values you gave them. And there were a couple of kids that it was, like, they didn't have, like, dads that were around. They didn't have any of this. So for a couple years, like, I was at least able to give them, like, that rock and, like, that example. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that that to me is, like, the un like the hidden value and like an education degree and stuff because you like how many people can see like the human result of what they do like yeah like at a hospital you can like patch somebody up you can send somebody on your way you can send them through therapy whatever else but like to be with kids for a year Mm -hmm. and to see your values get passed on and not to just like your child but like 150 kids that's like that is cool. Like That's powerful. We were, we were able to take our track team when I was a head coach and go from like eighth in the conference because they just viewed track and field, eight out of eight teams, and they viewed it as like a field day for the yeah, kids. Yeah, social. Yeah. I remember yeah. Track, middle school track. Social oh, hour, baby. I used to I pick did. up so many chicks during middle, field, middle school track. Oh, bro. <laughs> I ran that stuff. Like, it was like a legitimate training program. And, like, we had, like, athletes, and they were at their assigned places. Like, there was accountability. If you didn't perform or you didn't show a desire, like, you got cut from your events. Like, it was it was legit. And in one year, <laughs> in one year, they went from eighth to, like, third. And it, they beat, like, their, like, crosstown rival, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And to see, like, the pride when they're like, oh, we can do this. It it's was culture. Yeah, man. And that is, like, I really think there is, like, you know, Tom Brady doesn't win all those Super Bowls because he's Superman. He wins it because he dedicates himself that much to creating that culture. And, like, you look at Aaron Rodgers following Brett Favre. Like, Favre mentored him to have, like, that emphasis on culture and being that dude. Like, why do you think the guy has that weird, like, Fu Manchu sombrero, like, giant mustache all the time? It's like... You know, he realizes that's a part of like humanizing him and creating a culture, and it's a part of that. And it's like a stern, it's a stern message. Yes. Yeah. And that was, uh, I don't know, that was a, a big part of like, I think that even shaped like how I deal with like my, because I teach an 11 Bravo, so 11 Bravo infantrymen. I teach an infantryman qualification course. So, I'm in charge of like lower ranking dudes that want to transition to being infantry. They come to me for 21 days and I teach them how to do that. And like a lot of the way I interact with them, like I always say that like adults are just like middle schoolers that have learned to hide their weirdness a little bit better. And <laughs> like you realize that they That's are true. like they're middle schoolers and you the like, good adults are the ones that don't hide it though exactly like i would venture to say that we probably don't hide a lot of like we're pretty much the same i mean obviously we've matured but like yeah kind of the same people like the core traits are still there it's just you've learned like what to emphasize and what to right, downplay yes. <laughs> yep <laughs> yep 
and man when you have like when you have those students and you can and you have those students those soldiers those, like i i teach people war the same way i teach people english and it's just authenticity like there is so much bullshit in a world of staring at your screen and scrolling and doing all that when you can be a completely authentic human being and you can show a vested interest in somebody they will follow you until the end of the earth do you um did you do any history teaching no oh here goes jeremy again talk about history so i have another um hobby of mine is history learn learning about history yeah yeah um i don't do you have any like are you into military history at all? Yeah, so like, um, so I I'm really big into like uh, biographies of like prominent generals that like I've read like Jim Mattis like his memoir. I've read um, Stanley McChrystal. He was the commander of like ISAF, which was like all of NATO forces for a while. And, like those memoirs fascinate mm-hmm. me because it's like, how do you do More that? More modern. Yeah. So I'll like I'll read that stuff or even like. Um, like Marcus Aurelius is on like my radar. Like I, I like reading like old commanders mm-hmm. because it's like leadership to me is like such a refined art, and it's been refined over millennia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love. So I study like basically mostly like the greatness of history. Yeah, I think sometime down the road I'll do like a passion project based on like the the foundations of what we perceive as greatness and examples throughout history of it. Yeah. So I didn't know if you had like a favorite like old general, so like Napoleon or yeah. uh, even older than that, like Julius Caesar. So uh, Sun Tzu to me. Sun Tzu, yeah. So, oh, dude, I'm reading Art of War right now for like the 80th time. So Sun Tzu to me, uh, what is Im- what impressed me the most about the Art of War is like I really th- – to the hallmark of a really great philosopher is – the ability to make complex subjects simple. And he, I mean, you look at how the book is written and it is the absolute like hallmark poster child of that. And like his line about like, you know, if you understand, you know, the way, if you understand the enemy and not yourself, you, and like kind of goes into all that. Yeah. What is it? If you understand yourself and not the enemy, you'll win half of the time if you don't understand either you'll win zero here wait like i'm gonna look this up i wish we had like a i literally just read this last night i should remember it uh okay if you oh i'm not connected with the internet if you know your enemy and know yourself basically you'll win half your battles if you know like yourself and not the enemy like but it goes into that idea of understanding what makes you tick and also understanding your own faults. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every great victory gained, you also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And that, I think, for me, like, that was... Like, that is... That's profound on a lot of levels, because that's applicable at any level of leadership and at any level of performance because like the army structured in a really cool way where you have your low level guy that his only job is to understand himself his individual weapon system and his role in you know executing some part of battle mm-hmm. 
then you have like that level I'm at, which is like a staff sergeant. So that's like I'm in charge of managing 12 individuals. Mm -hmm. So now uh, numbers can vary, but now I need to not only understand every single person in that squad, but I need to understand their assigned duty. Things with him, man, was our shit stopped recording. Oh, it did. We've been going for two hours and forty-two minutes. Really? But we're back. I don't know what the last thing was said though. Jim Mattis, we're talking about Mad Dog Mattis. Yeah. So, like Jim Mattis, man. Um, one of the impressive things about Jim Mattis and why. I think I respect him so much as a leader is he had this sentiment and this idea that, you know, one, the Marine Corps was a free education and it was a free education in being successful because he was allowed to fail mm-hmm. at every level of leadership. But the Marine Corps knew that those failures were his tuition right. for being a good leader. Yep. But then his philosophy on reading was, if you are a leader and you're not a reader, right. you are failing your men because everything in history has happened before. Yes. 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 Yeah. And when you neglect reading and when you neglect self-improvement and all that, you are using your men in body bags as your tester for what you could have learned from a book. Damn. And do that. Damn. Like when you realize that, it's... So I study, the three things I study are persuasion, human nature, and yeah. history. Because at the end of the day, for business, that's really all I need to know. Like yeah. human nature, I know how people act. I know how they buy. I know how they work with one another. So I need to know that. Mm-hmm. Persuasion, I need to be able to sell, whether it be a product or an idea. Yeah. In history, because every single situation that we face in life has happened before. Yes. And the more I can see how other great men before me have handled a situation whether good or bad the better equipped i'll be able to handle that situation yep so i don't even read like you can do it self self-development books anymore i yeah. read only those three three areas and really mostly just human nature and uh history now and man i think that's like a that's a humility thing too like i i mean the situations i think we've kind of talked about for the past year I want to say are a big it just the situations we've dealt with I think it makes you realize like how small you are in the grand scheme of things and it makes you realize like how much you have to learn from everybody else Mm -hmm. like there there are those like Elon Musk's there are those people that are just that like the Steve Jobs that are just the once in a lifetime once in a generation talent Mm -hmm. and when you read about them Closely, sorry to cut you off. When you read about them, you understand they're just humans. Yeah. And they have fucked up things about them, too. Like, Steve Jobs didn't claim his daughter for, like, 25 years. Yeah, kind of a dick. Really big dick. Yeah. And Elon Musk is just, he became a nerd, and now he's just trying to prove the whole world he's not a nerd. Like, he's driven by that. Like, dude, you named your kid a math formula. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's... Speaking of Steve Jobs... One transformative moment in my life was the first iPhone that I ever saw. You know who owned that iPhone? John Bennett. That's right. Yep. That was transformative for me. I know really? it seems like a really weird deal. I can remember it clear as day sitting in, we were in your kitchen and your dad was showing us the new iPhone. It was the first iPhone that ever came out. I yeah. just remember thinking, wow. Do this you remember? Is crazy. Do you remember? Because I think I remember, I was, it was like, I think you and John kind of had that same moment. Because, 
do you remember the first time I was like, and the you can maps. take your fingers? Yes, and you can zoom. And you yeah. can zoom. <laughs> yes, I remember that. And yep. I, I really, that's what I think was so cool about Steve Jobs, man, is it's like he showed you, he showed, one, it was the value of being yourself. Mm-hmm. And as much of a dick as he might have been, like he was unapologetically himself, and he had that faith in his ability to be himself despite shareholder, like, yeah. you know, a board's seal of approval. And then, two, like, just the value of, like, innovation and creativity and not necessarily accepting, like, this is the just the way stuff is. He made it cool yeah. to innovate. Yeah. His task on this earth was not to come and be friendly. That is for sure. His task no. on this earth was to move product creation and, you know, a few steps forward. Yes. And he did that. He achieved his task on Earth. I hope I can do the fucking same. Well, and dude, you realize, like, I think for, like, at least for me being that kind of, like, quintessential nice guy, that was studying guys like him and not, like, whitewashing history and making it, like, this pretty neat bow on a top thing, but understanding him not for only his genius, but also his faults. Mm-hmm. That, dude, not not believing the lie of infallibility as a leader to me is one of the most valuable traits because like you were able to see like excuse me yes he was kind of he was a massive asshole but you were able to understand like he was able to push past so much of like the the feedback that formality and you know politeness and all of that kind of gets in the way of like you like he showed me there's a time and place to uncomfortably express your opinion and to be that asshole yeah did you you read the biography by uh uh, isaac walterson i i have it on my phone and i have not read it it's good really all of all of his books are good another good one he did was uh ben franklin who's probably my favorite entrepreneur of all time really yeah so why is why ben franklin then he was a he was relentless self-improvement he was like the almost the father of self-improvement for one Mm-hmm. He had 13 virtues that he wrote down that he had to master. And the 13th was added later. It was uh, vanity, and he never quite got that one, he said. Really? Yeah. Um, vanity. Yeah. And so he had that. He was an entrepreneur, so he built up his printing press. He And then he helped, des- like, basically helped design, like, he was in charge of building the post office for America. He was, okay. like, our greatest statesman over in France that helped them or encouraged them to help us with the revolutionary war he was just it's incredible. like a force. yeah just, yeah exactly he has such a long career too mm-hmm. he's like the if you put america into one person it's ben franklin really really for sure i will 100 um, percent alexander that. hamilton i just finished was way more important than i ever realized like he basically so the way this biographer put it was george washington is the father of our country James Madison was the father of the Constitution, and then um, Alexander Hamilton was the father of our government. Really? the government that we have built was because out of the brain of Alexander Hamilton. I had no idea. Dude, and that's like, I mean, that's when you're not, like, you're not, you know, people always want to say, you know, this is chess, not checkers. That's when you move from chess to go. Yeah. yeah, You know what I mean? Like, you're playing Chinese go at that point. Yeah. And to be able to... 
understand because you have to so much goes into account like treasury like human nature the petulance of human beings he the, built the treasury he was the treasury that's that's mind-blowing he's the reason that we have the the industrial the big and indu- the reason that america became what it is is arguably because of the financial system that he created really yeah because thomas jefferson we just wanted it to be an agrarian society where everybody is landowners and farmers and good nice people yeah where uh, alexander hamilton wanted it to be like this giant gdp machine yeah and that's what it became because he was the first treasury or secretary of treasury you almost wish that you could have like taken the i guess the minds of those guys and trans transport them to like now that's why i read so much history and just open it up and be like so what do you guys think of this right yeah <laughs> and yep. but that is like uh I mean, I think you nailed it when you talked about, you know, like reading about historical greats and that was, it just like, it, like we already said, I mean, it's not only humbling, but it's, it shows you how much there is to like learn. And mm-hmm. I even had, uh, my buddy Chad sent me a, an article about the kind of the value of having like a big library in your house. Mm-hmm. Cause that's one of the, like when you walk into my front office, it's like, um, like I have kind of turned it in the space I'm really happy for really happy about and thank god my wa- for like my wife letting me do this where it's like got like my computer and stuff like my big like wooden desk my dad had and then there's a couch on the other side but it's like you know there's like a piano there's a couple like a little center table with like a couple of like bourbon glasses and stuff and it's kind of turned into like a like a pontification room nice. so <laughs> I love it but it's there's a ton of books and everything in there and i really think there is a value in having physical books because you realize like no, no matter how much you have read and no matter how like intelligent we may think we are like ernest hemingway like said in the sun also rises like you know he kind of said this really interesting philosophy and at the end of it and he's like and in no doubt i'll think that's complete garbage in 5 years when i change my mind yep and you yeah, realize like how much the pursuit of knowledge is like an evolving process and you have to like we've kept saying like you have to maintain that discipline that hunger that everything else because if you the second you sit on your laurels that's the when you start to become obsolete what is it the more you know the more you realize you don't know yes yeah and that's why it this whole thing like that's i think why like getting off facebook was such a relief because you get away from all the shit slinging and you get away from that personality that's like just digital monkeys slinging shit so much of like the i i comment because i know mm-hmm. and you realize it's like no you like you comment because you're bored man like if you would have spent the amount of time you spent like on facebook if you would have spent that in a book or in like actually genuinely reading about whatever it is you're just spewing shit about, you probably would have been able to come back with a way more intelligent opinion and write it in half the time. Yeah. Yeah. The longer, yeah. God, people leaving these long ass comments. I don't know. I haven't been on Facebook in, I don't know the last time, but maybe people don't do that anymore. Like Facebook, just put yeah. a disclaimer <laughs> now. Stop. That was like six years ago, guys. Yeah. No, I don't know. I, Definitely don't get on Facebook, but I got off Instagram and Twitter. 
they all serve their purpose and there's good things that come from them and I'll be back but I'll be back just to offer teachings and not to so much engage in the craziness I'm not going to be back in scrolling and consuming I'm going to I'm going to switch from being a consumer of social media to to a producer yes and that I mean like I mean we've said it before it's a or I may never go back I don't know I'm pretty happy without it <laughs> you know I'm not going to lie I feel one see the really concerning thing for me about social media when I first got off of it and when I realized it wasn't like a great thing and I experienced the same thing after I kind of like got into recovery out of substance abuse was I when I stopped downloaded when I deleted my social media I would find myself just staring mm-hmm. at the open screen of my phone I would like just be looking at like the open like home screen and just like staring at it yeah doing nothing and then whenever like I first got into the like after like the first month of recovery I noticed like once that those substances had left my system and I'd meditated enough and I'd talked to my wife enough and I'd talked to professionals enough that I had gotten rid of those cravings because that's the big lie with substance abuse is that it's a permanent state right and when you get out of that and you get on the other side of that you realize like I would just find myself like sitting and just staring but then slowly I realized okay this was the time that I would fill with that negative right. outlet. And so now... So are you completely sworn off any kind of substances, or you just... No, it's more kind of, of like... got your bearings. It's... I just got my bearings. Like, I will, like, even my wife and I, we're going to go to the wine garage, and... But now it's like, I have a strict, like, two-drink limit. Like, okay. I will have, like, two glasses of wine, and that is not every night. So it's a special occasion thing. Pardon me, I don't mean to project but or anything, but that sounds just kind of like you just fell into a bad habit more than you were just, like, totally addicted to... Yeah, and I kind of talked to you earlier about the the other stuff was more what I was, yeah. like, way... That was more of, like, the addiction. Yeah. And that was more of, like, the staring. The, the like, wine or, like, a beer was more of a bad habit, and I think my approach to moderation in that was from kind of the other stuff. Okay. And... It was like it was a weird that was the the hardest part about substance abuse was when you realize that like a lot like if you've ever heard like Macklemore's other side and you actually look at the lyrics like you realize that a lot of like popular culture is kind of like romanticized like cannabis and mm-hmm. it's like romanticized like alcohol use and all that stuff like if you listen to like Mike Posner's album where he walked across America or you listen to like Macklemore's album like other like other sides specifically when he talks about it you realize like it's a lot of just like tough talk for commercials sake to like right. sell and like they just want to produce what people want to hear mm-hmm. and when you realize that like a lot of those guys have found like a better self and a better sense of creativity when they get out of that you realize it's because like you're not just like a zombie on like autopilot yeah and like after i got better my wife was kind of like you know you were like because dad and dad getting sick happened like right after we like got really involved and like even when i got married like i was still under the influence of a lot of that stuff and like when i first got like sober sober 
uh, she's like, you know, you haven't been like sober in a long time. Yeah. And it was, it was weird to like have your wife like tell you that and be like, this is the first time I've seen you like not like that. She's like the funny, that goes back to the credit card for your happiness. Like Mm -hmm. I came out of that and realized like, I am just a happier person and I still have those negative emotions. I still have those situations that made me want to do that. But now I have the space to realize like, okay, I know that I would feel better for about an hour if I were to use this stuff. But at the same time, like I would come out of it and I would be feel just way worse. So now it's like, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to go to the garage and like, I'm going to build up like my, office like my conversation wall I call it with like cool pictures or like you know like I got a sword in Africa so like my sword like figure out a way to mount that and like figure out how to like put all this other stuff up (laughs) I just you find like productive stuff to do and stuff that fulfills you dude we just went three hours yeah I my first three hour one and I'm so glad it was with you man I fucking love catching up this was awesome dude this was really good and I am uh I'm super glad that we were able to do this. Like, yeah. I want to do it again. We're going to do it again? Yes, okay, absolutely. absolutely. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Where can uh, people find you? Well, you're not on social media. Fuck y'all. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> thanks for listening, y'all. Thank you, you guys. Hey, thanks for listening.